When I took office, I committed to fixing this broken immigration system. And I began by doing what I could to secure our borders. But today, our immigration system is broken. And everybody knows it. There are actions I have the legal authority to take as president. Tonight, I'm announcing those actions. We'll build on our progress at the border with additional resources for our law enforcement personnel so that they can stand for illegal crossings. You're welcome, Neil. Is hell. Manufacturing descent since 1996. This is hell, and on this week's hell, George Soros may not be as evil as the far right claims he is, but there's still big problems with George Soros. Speaking of problems, the biggest problem identity politics faces may be identity politics themselves. In the age of Trump, we all may soon have a rendezvous with oblivion. The largest U.S. corporations are engaging in billions of dollars of wage theft. We'll have a moment of truth with Jeff Dorchin, which I will tell you about in a moment. And I'll explain how the global economic system that's screwing us all is not your fault or mine. That's all during this week's Live for our edition of This Is Hell. Our first guest this week is foreign policy analyst Daniel Bessner, who wrote the N Plus One article, the Globalist, George Soros after the Open Society. No, Soros is not, as Roseanne Barr said in a tweet the day she was fired from her TV show. Soros is not a Nazi who turned in his fellow Jews to be murdered in German concentration camps and stole their wealth. No matter what Glenn Beck and Dinesh D'Souza claim, as well as Ann Coulter, Sean Hannity, Alex Jones, but neither is Soros's philanthropic worth work as praiseworthy as Chelsea Clinton says it is. In fact, the biggest problem with billionaire George Soros may be that, well, he's a billionaire. We'll find out how good and bad George Soros is when we talk to Daniel, who is the Ann H.H. and Kenneth B. Pyle Assistant Professor in American Foreign Policy in the Henry M. Jackson School of International Studies at the University of Washington. You can find out more about Daniel at DanielBessner, B-E-S-S-N-E-R dot com. Following Daniel in our discussion on the good, the bad, and the ugly of George Soros, we'll uh, talk to Assad Haider. He's author of Mistaken Identity, Race and Class in the Age of Trump. Saad will take us back to the historic Combahee River Collective, which was a group of black lesbian militants who collaborated on the influential writing called A Black Feminist Statement. The statement argued for a diverse and inclusive movement as a socialist response to American capitalism. It is also the beginning of identity politics. Assad explains how today's identity politics were co-opted and exploited by those with politics that were the exact opposite of those that were embraced by the Combahee River Collective. And the only way things can change is if activists get back to the original meaning of identity politics. Assad is a founding editor of Viewpoint Magazine and investigative journal of contemporary politics. He is a Ph.D. candidate in the History of Consciousness at UC Santa Cruz 
which is by far the coolest thing I've ever read in a bio, and a member of UAW 2865, the Student Workers Union at the University of California, which is also in the top 10 for coolest item in a bio. After our investigation into the meaning of identity politics and what that means for identity and identity politics, we'll have the return of Thomas Frank, author of a book that was published Friday, like in yesterday, that has the very happy title, Rendezvous with Oblivion, Reports from a Sinking Society. Our featured interview on the This Is Hell Patreon podcast this week is a conversation we had with Tom back in October 2008, nearly 10 years ago, right between the time of the financial crisis beginning and Barack Obama being elected president. Tom's new book features essays from right around then and going up to earlier this year. So we'll be talking to Tom about the past 10 years of U.S. politics, including the very good possibility of a Trump re-election. Tom is a former columnist for the Wall Street Journal and Harper's. He is the founding editor of The Baffler and writes regularly for The Guardian. Tom is also author of other books that are bound to get people angry, including Listen Liberal, which we discussed with him in April of last year, the last time Tom was on our show. He also wrote What's the Matter with Kansas, Pity the Billionaire, and One Market Under God, all of which have been discussed with Tom here on This Is Hell. Find out more about Thomas at TC Frank. Com. And we'll begin our fourth and final hour of this week's This is Hell by speaking with Good Jobs First Research Director Philip Matera, lead author of the report Grand Theft Paycheck, the large corporations shortchanging their workers. It turns out some of the biggest corporations in the U.S. have a business model of stealing pay from workers and giving it to some of the highest paid CEOs in the country. And wage theft isn't just for fast food and retail workers anymore. No, it's moved on to Silicon Valley as well as throughout the finance, health, insurance sectors and beyond. Of course, it still affects women as well as Latinx and blacks more. Sadly, I kind of figured that went without saying, but I figured I should say it anyway in case you forget that women, Latinx and blacks get job more everywhere all the time. This has been a public service announcement from your friends here at This Is Hell. Okay, maybe we're not friends. Let's just say acquaintances and leave it at that. Find out more about Phil at goodjobsfirst.org and read all of his writing at dirtdiggersdigest.org. We'll wrap up this week's This Is Hell, as we do most week's show. That is with a moment of truth from the lovely lobes of Jeff Dorchin. And this week, Jeff presents Kanye's Choice, Part 3, The Dumbening and The Smarting. So that's Roseanne Barr, Glenn Beck, Dinesh D'Souza, Chelsea Clinton, Ann Coulter, Sean Hannity, Alex Jones. They all got it wrong when it comes to George Soros. A history lesson on how identity politics got co-opted by those who were diametrically opposed to its inclusive and collectivist politics. The last 10 years in U.S. politics and how it created one horrifyingly easy path for the re-election of Donald Trump to a second term in office. Some of the biggest corporations in the U.S. have stolen billions of dollars from their workers as part of their business model. I'll tell you, I was wrong. It's not all your fault or mine. And during a singular moment of truth, Jeff presents Kanye's Choice Part 3, The Dumbening and the Smarting. That stuff, plus some rotten history, listener feedback, what Alex has been up to on social media, the question from hell, a whole bunch of people we want to thank for supporting This Is Hell and sharing the show online. Maybe we'll get to twist off knowledge and, of course, what's happening on upcoming episodes of This Is Hell. I'm your bitter, blind, broke, gap-toothed radio show host, Chuck Mertz. Producing this week's This Is Hell is Alex Jerry. Alex, what's new about you? Are you planning to bring up TSOL with... Uh with Thomas Frank again this time? No, that was 10 years ago. Why, was, why did that come up like four times in that in that Patreon interview? Uh, because he had a dream about it. I had a dream this week that the, uh, I had an ad in the middle of my dreams this week for a new uh, cat supplement, and it was called Petulant Cutriant. 
I gotta have ads getting out of my dreams. Wild dreams. Uh, dude, I had another one that where there was an ad for Lady Gravy. I'm still trying to figure out what Lady Gravy is. Uh, you want to introduce the new uh, potential future volunteer for This Is Hell? Yeah, let me uh, put his headphones on because it's also my headphones because only one headphone jack works. <laughs> Hold on a second. His headphones. Hi, hi, Chuck. Thanks so much for having me. Uh, introduce yourself. Oh, I'm Leo. Leo is somebody who's thinking about being a volunteer on our show. Welcome to the staff, sir. Thank you. Did you fill out all your paperwork? Uh, not yet. Okay. You get a 401k here, you know. Oh, I did not. Yeah, all you have to do is just contribute it in cash to Alex on a regular basis. <laughs> all right. This is Hal, and we are broadcast live without interruption on WNUR 89.3 FM, Evanston, Chicago Sound Experiment, streaming live online at our website, thisishell.com. Podcast shortly after at the same place, thisishell.com, now airing in an abbreviated one-hour version on Sunday mornings in Moscow. Idaho on KRFP and on Lumpen Radio on Chicago's South Side. Brave enough to be live, dumb enough to be goofy, stupid enough to think that we could be a regular part of your weekly hangover. This is hell. And Alex has this week's hangover cure. This week's hangover cure is Hunter S. Thompson's hangover cure, which we strongly <laughs> advise against anyone using. According to the article, Hunter S. Thompson's personal hangover cure and the real science of hangovers at Open Culture in 2011, Playboy released a compendium of 1960s and 1970s communications between Playboy and Hunter Thompson. As the story explains, most correspondences were disappointingly prosaic, but among the dross was a hardly scribbled note on the topic of hangover cures. P.S. In reference to Wee's reference for my hangover cure... It's 12 amyl nitrates, that's one box, in conjunction with as many beers as necessarily, as necessary. Okay, Hunter. That makes this week's hangover cure, Hunter S. Thompson's hangover cure of a box of amyl nitrates. Is that poppers? Uh, yes, sir. Okay. Can you uh, recommend poppers if for someone who might be interested? Mm, on the air? <laughs> no. Uh I just love the fact that he was talking to Playboy, and he's saying, in reference to Wee Magazine's request for my hangover cure, I had no idea that there was some cooperation or commingling between the Wee and Playboy empire. Uh, also, just so everyone knows, it's O-U-I, yes. not the uh, Wee tabloid. <laughs> you are listening to God's favorite radio show. Prove us wrong. This is hell. And I was wrong. It's not your fault. It's not your fault. I'm telling you, I was wrong. I'm sorry, but it's not my fault either. Which, for me, it's even better news that we don't share in any responsibility for the mess we found ourselves in. Look, last week I was kind of depressed. I mean, I'm always kind of depressed. That's pretty much my natural state of being, as it is with everyone, right? A permanent mix of emotions. They're always out there just sloshing around, right? I mean, there's always some happiness lurking in the background, ready to jump out and surprise me. And those moments happen every day. Don't get me wrong. But anyway, last week, I had it pretty bad. And I said, I am death, destroyer of worlds. I also said, I am Vishnu, which is pretty freaking pompous, comparing yourself to a Hindu god like Vishnu. It's excusable from someone who is tripping... Annoying, but excusable. But if the person who said it isn't tripping, and I was not tripping last Saturday morning, it's egotistical at best. At worst, pretty dicky. Sure, that was pretty wrong for me to say that I was Vishnu, destroyer of worlds. But I didn't stop there. I argued I was complicit and responsible for, and will inevitably continue to contribute to, the destruction 
of our planet. As all my basic needs for survival are tied up in the Earth-destroying global economic system we all participate in, and every basic need that I required to exist destroys, I'm a murderer of not only this generation, but into the future as well. It's my fault that I've hurt people younger than me the most, children I love, that I've somehow been an agent of their future death. I described getting in our fossil fuel climate change causing car and going to a supermarket as part of a food distribution process that has led to hundreds of thousands of farmers committing suicide around the world. Even simply being at home and enjoying a quiet evening, the electricity I use feeds global warming and rising sea levels that is having devastating effects right now on people like the Rohingya, for instance. But oddly, climate change and sea level rise never really come up in the story of the Rohingya, just human rights. In the clothes I wear, I could feel the hands of people working in abusive, unsafe, even deadly slave-like conditions. So I thought, it's all my fault. Then two hours later, on these very same airwaves and on the stream, live stream and podcast, we talked to award-winning new economy movement pioneer Helena Norberg-Hodge, and she explained how it's not my fault, and it's not yours either. See, when I uh, wrote last week's monologue, I hadn't yet read Helena's article, Localization, a Strategic Solution to Globalized Authoritarianism, which was a long read published at the Transnational Institute's website and was the basis for our interview. Again, I want to thank listener Tom for the guest suggestion, and we're doing an all-listener-suggested guest show in July next month, so keep sending those suggestions to chuck at thisishell.com. That's the kind of stuff I have to plug, so sorry for getting a little bit too AM radio there for a moment. But when talking to Helena, I had an epiphany that it wasn't my fault or yours. Helena started explaining that we are not the cause of the failings of neoliberal globalization. We were never asked. In fact, where no neoliberalism has taken place on a national or regional level, there was never a vote on whether the economics of neoliberalism should be put in place. Many politicians even ran opposing neoliberalism, or not mentioning neoliberalism at all, but still employing it as soon as they get into office. I'm looking at you, dead Margaret Thatcher. There was never a referendum on whether there should be a WTO or an IMF or a World Bank. There was never a referendum, a direct democratic vote on any aspect of today's brutal capitalism that thrives off of inequality in the backs of the poorest of the poor in the poorest nations in the world. It's not your fault either. There is no reason you or I should feel any guilt for the destructive power of our economic system. That means... You don't have to feel guilty when that friend who believes in climate change starts going on about how it's the end of the world. It's not your fault, especially conservatives. It's not your fault. Instead of blaming yourself, blame the system you live in. Do you remember signing off on this climate change-causing project? I certainly as hell don't. And blaming you and me is part of the way our neoliberal globalized economic system operates on a psychological and political level. It blames you and me for all its outcomes. The system is never at fault. You are merely a bad input into that system. More extreme weather? It's because you drive a car. And if you don't, you bum rides off other people, which is even worse. Higher sea levels? Droughts? It's because you're not a vegetarian. And if you are, unless you're a purely organic subsistence farmer on the freaking moon, go peddle your papers. Higher temperatures? It's your fault for wanting electricity. Oh, 
you don't have or use electricity? Well, unless you got your own water wheel or a windmill that was built without power tools. Beat it, Jagoff. Don't let them blame you for the ship they wrecked long before you got on board. And they continue to wreck our ship without our consent. So it's not my fault. I'm not a destroyer of worlds, and neither are you. We don't live on a world we created. We entered a world that was already being destroyed without our approval ever being asked. It's not our fault. The system, the world we live in, is not something that's in our control, which is simultaneously liberating as well as it is frightening. After years of being told there is no alternative, again, Margaret Thatcher, horrible human being, Helena says there is an alternative and it's localization. And you can find out about it by visiting the website of the organization Helena founded and directs. That's Local Futures and the International Alliance for Localization at localfutures.org. Me? I'm just glad to know it's not my fault. It's somebody else's. But if it was my fault, then maybe at least I could do something about it. Damn it. I hope localization is it. And that's why. This is hell. And this week's question from hell is, what's it going to say on America's tombstone? What's it going to say on America's tombstone? All replies get read on air during the third hour of this week's This Is Hell. Our favorite wins a copy of a book we'll be featuring later on the show. Thomas Frank's Rendezvous with Oblivion reports from a sinking society. Again, the question from hell is, what's it going to say on America's tombstone? Leave your response now at our Facebook page, facebook.com slash thisishellradio. Listen during the third hour of this week's show to hear all the responses and to find out if you've won. Coming up on this week's This Is Hell... Roseanne Barr, Glenn Beck, Dinesh D'Souza, Alex Jones, Sean Hannity, Ann Coulter, and Chelsea Clinton all got it wrong when it comes to George Soros. A history lesson on how identity politics got co-opted by those who were diametrically opposed to its inclusive and collectivist politics. The last 10 years in U.S. politics and how it created one horrifyingly easy path for the re-election of Donald Trump to a second term in office. Some of the biggest corporations and the U.S. have stolen billions of dollars from their workers as part of their business model. And during a singular moment of truth, Jeff presents Kanye's Choice Part 3, The Dumbening and the Smarting of America. All that plus some rotten history, listener feedback, what Alex has been up to on social media. We'll tell you what about this week's Patreon podcast. We'll ask and answer the question from hell. We've got a whole bunch of people we want to thank for supporting This Is Hell and sharing the show online. Maybe we'll get to twist off knowledge, of course, what's happening on upcoming episodes of This Is Hell. Noam Chomsky called This Is Hell sanity in talk radio. So clearly and sadly, Noam's gone insane. This is hell. George Soros is the most evil man in the world, according to the right, but a hero for democracy to the left. So who's right, and what if they're both wrong? Here to help us understand who and what George Soros really is, foreign policy analyst Daniel, Daniel Bessner wrote the N Plus One article, The Globalist, George Soros After the Open Society. Welcome to This is Hell, Daniel. Thanks. I'm really glad to be here. Find out more about Daniel at danielbessner.com. That's B-E-S-S-N-E-R.com. He's the author of Democracy in Exile, Hans Speyer and the or Spear, Spire, and the Rise of the Democratic uh, Intellectual. His next book is 
provisionally entitled The Rand Corporation, A History. And when that book comes out, Daniel, we will definitely want to have you on the show. We had uh, uh, Daniel Ellsberg on our show several times. He worked for the Rand Corporation. It would be great to have a history of that corporation. So expect us to annoy you in emails in the future. Oh, I look forward to it very much, though. You describe how on the same day late last month that Roseanne Barr was fired by ABC for a racist tweet about President Obama's advisor, Valerie Jarrett. Barr also tweeted that Chelsea Clinton is married to George Soros's nephew, calling her Chelsea Soros Clinton. You write, in the desultory exchange that followed, the youngest Clinton responded to Roseanne by praising Soros's philanthropic work with his Open Society Foundations, to which Barr responded in the most depressing and expected way possible, repeating false claims earlier proffered by the likes of Glenn Beck and Dinesh D'Souza. Barr replied, sorry to have tweeted incorrect information about you, Chelsea. Please forgive me. By the way, George Soros is a Nazi who turned in his fellow Jews to be murdered in German concentrations camps and stole their wealth. Were you aware of that? But we all make mistakes, right, Chelsea? To you, what explains these outrageous claims against Soros. If the, if the right doesn't like what he is up to with his Open Society Foundations, why not attack those actions instead of lying? Well, I think it's really interesting. I mean, Soros is, of course, a Jewish foreigner, and he fits into this very long, uh, centuries-long, really, history dating back to the Rothschilds of conservatives uh, essentially engaging in anti-Semitic attacks on, uh, uh, attacks on Jews who are considered too wealthy, who are uh, really have considered to made their, their way far too much in society. And what's ironic is that I think Roseanne kind of identifies as a Jew, so it also was that element of self-Jewish betrayal and that very strange uh, tweet that was a hell of a by-the-way uh, in her statement. But I think he basically fits into this long pattern of anti-Semitic hatred that, that could really be traced in far-right ideologies going back hundreds of years, really centuries. So it's uh, the attacks on George Soros, then. It would be fair to describe them as simply uh, anti-Semitic dog whistles? Yeah, absolutely. I think it's really hard to disagree with that. I mean, if you look at how he's portrayed in, uh, in the far-right media, if you look at how he's become a symbol in Europe for basically Jewish capital, it's definitely um, uh, linked to this deep anti-Semitism. So how much of their support, then, that George Soros does get do you think is based on defending him from ridiculous claims from the far-right? Because the discussion around Soros always seems to be a reaction against the most outrageous claims against him, not an informed debate about what he is actually doing. So to what degree do you think this actually leads, I mean, these ridiculous claims actually lead the left to not be as critical of George Soros and to defend him even more? I, uh, it's actually interesting. Uh, at least I didn't come across many um, defenses of Soros that specifically reference uh, defending him in order to help overcome anti-Semitism. I think the the, the liberals, as distinguished from the left, um, approve of George Soros because he basically embodies their ideology and their opinion. Uh, Soros is a meritocrat. He made his money fairly and legally, and because he was a meritocrat, there, he's obviously had some cognitive superiority. And for that reason, he should be allowed to do what he wants in the world and to shape public affairs with his billions of dollars. And of course, uh, it's important to defend people against anti-Semitic attacks. But I think uh, doing that solely uh, misses, in fact, the, the, the negative aspect of the um, of the fact that George Soros is a billionaire who, just because he has a lot of money, is really able to shape uh, policy in ways that no one individual person should be able to do, just like Bezos did in Seattle, where I'm from, with uh, getting the city council to ignominiously repeal the head tax. Do you think these lies about Soros hurt the far right's case in criticizing Soros's actions? Or is this not about 
convincing the left or liberals or even centrists or the general public that this is really only about preaching to the choir and continuing a narrative that is a complete falsehood? I just think it's really more about preaching to uh, the choir. I don't think the the right wing has particular problem with billionaires like the Koch brothers, but I think they see in Soros a really foreign Jewish figure. And with the rise of right nationalism, uh, both right nationalism and white nationalism, uh, they're able to use them as a uh, as a potent symbol of sort of foreign influence in American affairs. And it's it's such an obvious uh, dog whistle that really unites a lot of fringe figures on the right, uh, mainstream people like. Hannity, but also people like um, Beck and, and Alex Jones and, and Dinesh D'Souza. How much do you think then this is driven by a need by the right to have an evil rich person be, uh, behind the left in order to counter the leftist critique of the right being led by the evil rich? Is the Soros story an attempt to prove to the right's base that it's not only the right that is uh, uh, supported by the richest people? Is this about an attack on you know a term that's been coming up uh, with the game up this week again with uh, uh, President Trump? And that is, is this about trying to find the elite that they can demonize? Uh, I think one could read it at that, but when you actually read what people are saying, it's just mostly anti-Semitic dog whistle. There's not that much sophisticated thought behind it where he's sort of the left-wing parallel to the Cokes and, and, and a pox on both of your houses argument. It's really this, this anti-Semitic caricature that, that totally inflames the right wing, and he just he's, he's a symbol more than anything, to, to the right at least. So is he a better foil then in making him this evil anti-Semitic Nazi than being somebody who is possibly forwarding some sort of progressive agenda that might be opposed to conservative politics? Yeah, they, they mostly use him as a, a question sort of it, it's it's I would say it's actually based in conspiratorial thinking, which has, of course, been dominant on the right for, for quite a long time. If you go back to the militia movements of the 90s um, and the 9-11 truthers who actually come from both political sides, but also was, was part of the right. And more recently under Obama, the whole conspiratorial thinking about birth, the birther movement and Obama being a Kenyan socialist and all of that. So Soros is best, I think, explained as as a, as a extension of this conspiratorial thinking with a nice dash of anti-Semitism thrown in to give it a particular valence that is uh, deeply embedded in, um, in, in aspects of conservative politics. You're right. Unlike most of the members of the billionaire class who speak in platitudes and remain withdrawn from serious engagement with civic life, Bill Gates and Mark Zuckerberg come to mind. Soros is an intellectual. The person who emerges from his popular books and many articles is not an out-of-touch plutocrat, but a provocative and consistent thinker unambiguously committed to pushing the world in a cosmopolitan direction in which racism, income inequality, American empire, and the alienations of contemporary capitalism would be things of the past. Is that what the right really opposes in Soros, that he is against racism, inequality, uh, empire, and the kind of capitalism that exists today? In attacking Soros, does the right reveal themselves as a political ideology that is racist, wants growing inequality with the rich constantly getting richer and the poor constantly getting poorer, with the U.S. involved in military campaigns around the world to enforce the global economic system, a system the right unquestioningly supports. Is that what they reveal themselves to be in attacking Soros? Uh, Yeah, uh, I would say partially. I think the right reveals itself to be that uh, in other ways more so than attacking Soros, because to be honest, I think if you ask 99% of the people who demonize Soros uh, what he actually does, they would have almost no idea. 
So that's why, in, in my mind, it's really Soros is, is more of a, a symbol. They, they don't actually engage with the substance of his ideas, which are, interestingly, and this was very surprising to me, I went into this piece expecting to be very critical of Soros, which, which I am, but I didn't expect him to have so many positions that we would actually say are, are pretty left-wing, especially from a, a perspective, and it's, uh, from a modern perspective. I mean, Soros was writing against the American empire in 2003. You know, almost immediately after Iraq, with every with so many other people in his class were were supporting it, and he was writing against hypercapitalism in the late 1990s as well. So I was pretty surprised that Soros actually had some really good ideas. And the only question uh, that 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 I had emerging from that is why he wasn't able to turn these ideas into reality. Uh, on one hand, and on the other hand, what really held him back from em- embracing a, a hardcore critique of capitalism? Can, from the attacks on George Soros by the right, can we deduce that symbols are more powerful politically than substance? So this is really, it's it's a really interesting question. And, and to me, that question is really one of the most important uh, questions of political modernity. Because a democracy, theoretically, of course, requires an, an engaged and informed public able to make, you know, semi-wise decisions, or at least able to be able to uh, at least able to engage in debate and discussion about about decisions and about public policy issues. But the uh, the problem that many critics of democracy have had from the 1920s forward is that people seem to be easily manipulated by mass propaganda techniques, right? And this raises a particular uh, difficult question for the left: is what does the left do with that information? Because you don't want the left to basically just become another propaganda machine, even though those sorts of things are important, I guess, to political organizing and getting people to vote for uh, the polls. But you really want a left based on deep engagement with public affairs where people are able to democratically exchange ideas. So I think the sad truth is that, yes, it does show that Soros and symbols are really important in modern politics and that tragically that substance oftentimes isn't the most important thing in political organizing or whipping up political fervor. I just thought of this question. I'm going to hate asking it. Uh, Is the criticism of George Soros, oh, I'm going to hate asking this, fake news? (laughs) Is it fake news? Uh, Oh, is it fake news? Um, No, I mean, there's there's a substantial criticism to be made of George Soros but I mean, yeah, in the sense it's fake news in that George Soros certainly never gave up any of his fellow Jews to the Nazis. Uh, he's certainly not this uh, widespread of um, mastermind sort of in an anti-Semitic sense, pulling the levers of, of uh, American policy and world policy. Uh, so that that aspect is certainly fake news. But I think you're you're definitely able to make significant critiques of Soros and his view of the world. But the right wing does it in this in a disgusting anti-Semitic way that 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 really shouldn't be celebrated or really find a, a space in public discourse uh, at all when 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 Sean Hannity goes off against George Soros that should really be not acceptable that that should be a taboo to use anti-semitic dog whistles on Fox News but it, it for some reason it presently isn't <laughs> you write Soros is as comfortable with Wittgenstein as he is with Warren Buffett which makes him a sui generis that is unique figure in American life someone who's like uh, uh, whose likes we will not see again for quite a while. He is extremely perceptive about the limits of markets and U.S. power in both domestic and international contexts. He is, in short, among the best the meritocracy has produced. What does that say to you about the meritocracy when Soros is the best it can produce? 
Well, I think that was the that was the point of that argument. I mean, Soros is the best you're going to get with meritocracy. He actually sees what's wrong with the system, and he actually tries to reform it. But the problem is that the, just the very structure of meritocracy is so linked to a capitalist political economy that has become hereditary and oligarchical that even the best of the meritocracy can't see the problems that actually face our society and promote, you know, what I would say is the post-capitalist solutions that are necessary to address the problems that we deal with. But what is interesting about Soros is he's very different from Gates and Zuckerberg in that he's really more intellectually interested than them. So uh, Gates, you know, is a very middle-brow thinker. He really likes Steven Pinker and all this pablum about how the Enlightenment is uh, is like dominant and it's the greatest thing, and that postmodernism is a critique of the Enlightenment, which is absolute, um, in my opinion, not garbage. I guess garbage might be a bit too strong, but kind of garbage. Uh, and Zuckerberg, who really I think is one of the most uninterested people I've seen in public life, but is nonetheless able to affect public affairs. Soros actually thinks about things, and so he is someone who actually engages in these issues. But the fact is, he still doesn't go far enough, which to me, at least reveals the severe limits of meritocracy as a social system that is able to address the needs of the many and not just the few. You write that Soros's failures are so telling. They are the failures not mere, merely of one man, but of an entire class and the an entire way of understanding the world. Does Soros share those same class failures with someone you mentioned earlier, Bill Gates or, or Zuckerberg? Because we have had several people who have worked in what they m- may be called misleadingly development, arguing that Gates' <laughs> development policies are not only one of the problems with contemporary capitalism, but they work toward expanding American empire, which are two things Soros criticizes. So how much do Gates and Soros uh, share the same failures of their class? I I mean, I think they do. I think the problem with development is a very fundamental problem. You're never going to get, quote unquote, development. And I agree with you that terms should be used in quotes. Uh, What are we developing toward? The the United States is not like everyone here is so happy and everyone here is so alienated. I mean, that saying that everyone here is so alienated. Um, But basically, you're never going to be able to uh, develop these societies in a way in which we live in a capitalist global economy where the periphery is always subject to the metropole, where that the the empire always decides what 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 is able to be done. And people who live in uh, what's now called the global south, what used to be called the third world, are unable are are unable to really assert themselves on the global stage. So it's these ameliorative projects that never uh, that never succeed. Now, the difference between. Soros and Gates is that Soros, I think, actually thinks about these issues in a way that Gates just doesn't think about these issues. But even though he thinks about these issues, he still believes that capitalism or or capitalist ethos or capitalist um, ways of doing things are able to bring these nations up to the level that he would like to see them at. And again, I don't want to say I agree with that level, but a level that Soros considers to be developed and good and democratic and everything like that. But what they haven't seen is that capitalism has so destroyed the society, the domestic societies upon which this project rests, that they'll never be able uh, to do what they want for the rest of the world when so much is rotten here at home. We are speaking with foreign policy analyst Daniel Bessner. He wrote the N Plus One article, The Globalist, George Soros, after the Open Society. You can go to our website, thisishell.com, and find a link directly to Daniel's article there. Or you can just go to Daniel Bessner. Dot com. Uh, you write from his earliest days as a broker in post-World War II London. Soros believed in a necessary connection between capitalism and cosmopolitanism. Now, cosmopolitan is defined as the ideology that all human beings belong to a single community based on a shared morality. To what degree is there any con- uh, contradiction then within 
Soros's thinking. That is, he is critical of contemporary capitalism, as he stated earlier, yet he believes in the market and how it connects us all. Is he both a critic of and a supporter of capitalism as it stands in its globalized form? Yeah, and I think Soros, I think that's a good way to put it. And I think that Soros is very much a product of his time, like we all are. So Soros is very much uh, someone who grew up during the Cold War. And he was uh, existing in an era where capitalism faced an uh, supposedly existential enemy. I think historians are lo- learning more and more that the Soviet Union wasn't nearly as dangerous or as bent on world destruction as people had assumed during the Cold War. But Soros grew up during those times, and that's what people thought. So Soros grew up during a time where capitalism was at least somewhat tamed by the fact that was th- that there was a political alternative. So Soros essentially believed that there could be a regulated, benevolent capitalism that would be able to uh, provide for the needs of most people and not just the rich oligarchs. But the problem is that what the history of the post-Cold War world demonstrates is that capitalism, absent an existential enemy, just becomes a hyper version of itself that just concentrates wealth, as Marx predicted, in a particular capitalist class. So Soros, I think at least, is blinded by his particular historical experience, is not able to see the tendencies inherent in an uh, unchallenged capitalism, which is really what we've experienced in, uh, since 1989, 1991, collapse of the Soviet Union and of the Cold War. So he's very much a product of these earlier moments. And his, his, um, his reading of history, I think, hasn't been updated enough to, to see where capitalism actually went. Is Soros then anti-socialist? Um, it's, it's a difficult question. I think he might say he's something along the lines of a moderate social democrat, where that he thinks the state should provide uh, certain public goods and uh, certain public services to people, but that ultimately uh, markets are very useful ways to, to organize preferences and to um, basically govern a certain elements of society. So it's, it's, a, it's a difficult question because there are certainly socialistic elements of his thought and the, the way we think about mid-century European uh, socialism. But um, yeah, I would say he's not anti socialist, but he might be considered a conservative social democrat. It, is Soros just another example of a neoliberal democrat akin to Bill and Hillary Clinton, even Barack Obama? Yes. This is what's interesting about Soros, is that there are sort of two Soroses. There's the Soros who writes in his books, uh, who who appears in his books, who is really this, I would again say probably conservative social democrat, but then there's the Soros in real life who does things like support Hillary Clinton or uh, critique uh, Kirsten Gillibrand for uh, pushing Al Franken or helping push Al Franken out of power. So there's a difference between the Soros, the intellectual, and the Soros, the uh, actual political actor who, with his billions of dollars, helps shape public affairs. And that's what's interesting about all of uh, him is that he's this tension-filled character who really, I think, at least represents the contradictions and tensions inherent in, uh, I don't know, latest capitalism. So then how aware do you think Soros is, maybe, you know, by reading his writing, uh, how aware do you think Soros is of this contradiction between how he accrues wealth and the instability it creates that he criticizes? And assuming he is not, what does he miss in his understanding of the world and how it works? So Soros has a very, very naive, I think, understanding of politics. So his essential uh, solution to the problems and, and tensions inherent to capitalism are that people should basically have two hats. He says in, in when they're dealing in markets and they're trying to make money, you could totally look out for your self-interest and uh, you could screw everyone else, and it doesn't really matter. But he says that when you're talking about politics and the public good, you need to put on a different hat and have the public interest in mind. And I think that's a very naive way of understanding politics and not uh, appreciating how 
people live in holistic cultures where a logic that operates in one area, especially logic of self-interest, which oligarchs and people who already have money are more likely uh, perhaps to be uh, self-interested, is necessarily going to apply in the political arena. It makes no sense why someone would be, you know, uh, a hedge fund banker on, on Goldman Sachs during the week and then vote for Bernie Sanders on the weekend because it's in the public interest. It's a very naive understanding of capitalism, which I think provides them, or not an understanding of capitalism, understanding of people, which I think provides Soros with an easy answer that has just proven time and again to be historically untrue. And this is why I ultimately come down on the side of uh, criticism of Soros, because I, I think that someone who has this view, um, well, first, I think no one should be able to be that rich, but also someone who has this view maybe shouldn't be the one deciding all of our um, political affairs. <laughs> yeah, I just don't get how you can be somebody who has done this much reading and has this kind of insight and separate politics from economics, think that there's nothing political about economics in, in any way. I, I, is that just a rationalization so he can live the next day? I think there's there's definitely rationalization elements uh, to it, and there's definitely utopian elements to it, because Soros really wants to believe that everybody has the, uh, the capacity for this like hyper-rationalistic uh, way of viewing the world. And I think this is also a failure of neoliberalism uh, writ large, where not everything is rational, right? Like emotions matter. It's not just a matter of means testing, right? It also matters how you feel about an issue. And so there's this, there's this very naive understanding of politics and economics as ultimately technological, uh, not technological, technical affairs or affairs of technique, which uh, I think enables Soros to uh, embrace this very naive understanding. And of course, there's elements of self-interest. I mean, Soros, though he has given away a lot of his money, he's certainly not going to you know, make only, which I would consider maybe even too much, $5 million a year, right? So there's this element of, of now that I have enough money, I'm able to do good for the world, which I think is uh, if you have enough money that you feel that you're able to do that, then there's something wrong with the social system. And Soros himself actually says this. Uh, I think in an interview in 1995, he said, the reason I decided to go to philanthropy was that I decided in the late 70s and or early 80s that I had enough money to devote myself to the good of the world. But the fact that we live in a system that forces people to make enough money that they're able to do good in the world is something that he never questions is problematic. <laughs> Does he believe then that there are market solutions for all the problems in the world, or has he stepped back from that belief? No, he definitely doesn't believe that there are market solutions for all the problems in the world. I, I mean, one of, one of Soros's, I think, best insights, his greatest insights, is that he does critique what he calls market fundamentalism, which is the idea that a market logic could apply in all spheres of life. But again, what he doesn't understand is that when a market logic uh, applies in, in the market, it's likely to infect other uh, areas of life, especially in an era where capitalism doesn't actually have an existential challenger. So this... <laughs> You know, you write that for Soros, the goal of contemporary human existence is to establish a world defined not by sovereign states, but by a global com community whose constituents understand that everyone shares an interest in freedom, equality and prosperity. In his opinion, the creation of such a global open society is the only way to ensure that humanity overcomes the existential challenges of climate change and nuclear proliferation. So does Soros necessarily mean the world should be led, if not governed by elites? Oh, absolutely. I mean, and, and he's very much a, a neoliberal technocrat in that regard. I mean, Soros clearly writes to the elite. And I think you see this by the fact that throughout all of his writings, he never really discusses mass public education, right? So theoretically, in a democracy, we, we would want this to be a consensus position arrived at by most people. But Soros really only talks about elite-led affairs 
and uh, sort of managing uh, technocratic officials at the EU level or the government level or the level of international organizations. And he never really discusses how we're supposed to get the, the demos on the side of this equation. So Soros is very much an elitist, and I think in, in that sense, he's very much of his class. He's very much a meritocrat. And Soros's opinion, if you succeed, you've proven, at least in some sense, that you're quote-unquote better. Now, it doesn't hold in all of his positions, and his philanthropy does actually promote a lot of like good public education things. But I think this is one of the big failures of Soros's, uh, Soros's own personal blinkered view of the world. You're right. Soros's thought and philanthropic career organized around the idea of the open society, a term developed and popularized by the 20th, 20th century science philosopher and liberal democracy proponent Karl Popper in Popper's book, The Open Society and Its Enemies. In Popper's schema, open societies guarantee and protect rational exchange, while closed societies force people to submit to authority, whether that authority is religious political or economic. How does it appear Soros determines what society is closed and what society is opened? Um, so, I mean, per- perhaps unsurprisingly, he considers the societies of the West, uh, particularly what, what, the West of the Iron Curtain, uh, France, uh, what was the Western Germany, the UK and the United States to be uh, paradigmatic examples of open societies, at least until the late 1990s, when he says market fundamentalism starts to take over. And closed societies, of course, would be the Soviet Union or the communist states of the Eastern Bloc. And again, Soros, this is how you can see that there's an elitist technocratic politics in, in his uh, opinions, because it's really Soros or other members of the elite who get to decide what's open or what's an open or closed society. And it's not a democratically arrived at decision. Why does Soros believe that U.S. interests are can be best served when the U.S. is, as he says, a hyperpower? Um, well, it's interesting. Soros thinks that the U.S. could uh, interests are best served uh, because the United States is able to provide a model of the world or kind of reshape the world in its image. But what's interesting is that his opinion about this kind of changes over time because he was really one of the first most vociferous critics of the Iraq war. Uh, so on one hand, he criticizes sort of the militaristic unilateralism of the Bush administration. But on the other hand, he would definitely promote a world of U.S. global leadership where the U.S. is essentially first among equals in creating global institutions that he believes are able to foster the free markets and free societies necessarily uh, necessary to creating the global society. So I think there's a tension there, right? Again, like with his economic thought, he doesn't see that how market fundamentalism logic that operates in the market wouldn't almost necessarily operate in other areas of life. He doesn't see that the fact that promoting U.S. leadership is something that could very easily slip into the militaristic unilateralism that he so condemned under the Bush administration. You may have touched on this already, but what explains why Soros cannot see the contradictions between the goals of capitalism and the goals of democracy? Um, it's, it's difficult to get into without psychologizing, but I think again, historically the fact that he's very much a creature of a different era when, when a benevolent capitalism at least seemed to be uh, the consensus position of most on the left, including the social democratic left, not only the liberal left, and it hasn't seen what's happened quite to the degree that he should since capitalism um, really emerged, quote-unquote, triumphant after the end of the Cold War. Uh, and that's, so that's the historical answer, and the personal answer would probably get into something of his psychology. I mean, he's, an incre- he's truly a rags-to-riches story, uh, you know, Holocaust survivor, uh, an immigrant who made an unbelievable amount of money. So to some degree, he must consider himself 
to be someone who's smart and deserving of this money. He hasn't given it away, and he dedicated himself to working in financial markets. So there's, there, there must be, even though I've never met the man, there must be something psychological about promoting a system which has helped him so, so, so much, way more than any other system had helped him in his life. And Soros claims that what we need is a change of attitudes. In your opinion, how right. much can we change the world with a change in attitudes? Don't we need that change before we can change the global economic system? Or are our attitudes a distraction from changing the global economic system? Um, I think you need both. I think you sort of need the material aspects of social change, but also attitudinal social change, especially in a democracy, because democracy is really uh, premised upon convincing people, at least to some degree, that that uh, uh, of your opinion. And this is, I think, ultimately the gamble of democracy, right? The problem is in a democracy that people might not vote for what you want to do. And the answer, in my opinion, at least, is not to create a dictatorship of the proletariat, which was an answer in the past, or uh, what the liberals did in the 1950s, which was essentially to create a shadow state or a pseudo state that is able to make policy without reference to the public or Congress. But you really need to engage in the types of open democratic debate upon which democracy is based. Um, and hopefully the gamble will, will fall in your favor, but you can't just give up the gamble. Is Soros classist? And how out of touch do you think he is with the real people? I mean, he must be out of touch. He, he's been a, a billionaire for, for decades at this point. I can't imagine that people treat him um, treat him well. I mean, and it's also, uh, uh, he's an indicative and an embodiment of the culture of neoliberal celebrity, where uh, these particular individuals are so cloistered because they basically run entire economies around themselves, whether it's Kim Kardashian or George Soros, that they're entirely, or maybe Kanye West is actually more a better example. Uh, Kanye West, is surra- they're surrounded by sycophants and yes-men, or, or yes, women who who really uh, don't allow them to connect with average people. Is is he classist in the sense that he thinks people of lower classes are are um, of lesser sort of human quality? I would say he is not classist in that ex- uh, sense, and explicitly so, and repeatedly says things along those lines. But again, I, I find it difficult to believe that one could be a billionaire and at least be implicitly classist in some regards to deserve that to to, to possibly think that one should deserve that amount of money to me seems very, very strange. And I couldn't imagine wanting that as a person. (laughs) Let's uh, get back to where we started this conversation with the claims of anti-Semitism towards George Soros from the far right. What does it say to you about the right when they use anti-Semitic terms to demonize Soros, but claim anyone who does not support every policy of the Israeli government is anti-Semitic? What does that tell you about the way the right defines anti-Semitism? Because in the right's criticism of Soros, I wonder if we can learn how the right uses anti-Semitism both to defend what they wish to support and attack those they oppose? Well, that's a really interesting question, and I'm not an expert on this topic, but I think it gets into elements of Christian Zionism, which some have argued are actually perversely anti-Semitic with the idea that Christians are Zionists because they want to see Jews return to Israel either so that they can convert to Christianity or so that Armageddon could come. So there's a really a lot of diff- really complex and interesting things going on right now with the uh, American far right and the Jews. Um, because um, the critique of Soros is obviously using these very old tropes of, of Jewish global dominance, things going back to the elders of Zion uh, in the 19th and 20th centuries. Um, but on the one hand, they critique, uh, especially right-wing politicians, critique any criticism of Israel as anti-Semitic. So I think what you can see at the very least is that the Jews occupy still a special place in the imagination of, of American Christianity specifically, and also I would uh, venture to guess uh, Christianity writ large on a global scale. And this, of course, goes back, you know, literally 
over a millennium to people like St. Augustine, people like John Chrysostom, who made use of the Jews as an important object in Christian theological thought, because, of course, Christians were considered to have subsumed uh, the, the Jewish revelation with their own revelation through Christ. So it's these deep, deep historical structures that, that go back um, to understanding where the position of Jews are in, uh, in Christian thought. We have been speaking with foreign policy analyst Daniel Bessner, who wrote the N Plus One article, The Globalist, George Soros After the Open Society. One last question for you, Daniel, and as we do with all of our guests, it's the question from hell, the question we hate to ask, you might hate to answer, or our audience is going to hate your response. Is George Soros an example of everything bad within the Democratic Party, everything that Trump voters voted (laughs) against? Uh, Is George Soros everything uh, no, I can't say he is. <laughs> <laughs> so there must be more that's bad with the Democratic Party. I think that's what you might be implying. That's what I'm implying. <laughs> there's a lot. There's a there's a lot more than George Soros to, to. I mean, how they're running, how they're running the DNC. I mean, there's so much more to be said about the Democratic Party. <laughs> So, that could be embodied in just George Soros. Sweet. It's not all George Soros's fault. He can sleep better tonight. Daniel, thank you so much for being on our show. Find out more about Daniel at danielbessner.com and go to our website, thisishell.com, and click on the link that takes you directly to his article at N Plus One Magazine. Thank you so much for being on our show, and we look forward to having you back on when you put out your book about uh, Rand Corporation and their history. Thanks very much. Have a good one. Thanks. Live from the nightmare of want, this is hell. Identity politics ain't what they used to be, and that's the problem. Instead of being what it originally was, an inclusive collectivist movement of socialism challenging capitalism, it's become the exact opposite. Instead of changing the system, we're just substituting a white cop for a black cop. We'll figure out what identity politics was originally, were originally, all about uh, what, what they were originally all about when we talk to Assad Haider, author of Mistaken Identity, Race and Class in the Age of Trump. Assad is a founding editor of Viewpoint Magazine, an investigative uh, journal of contemporary politics, and is a PhD candidate in the history of consciousness, which I think we all can agree Sounds pretty cool. Get the That Was Hell email newsletter free every Monday. Go to thisishell.com. Sign up now. This is hell in your inbox every Monday morning. Sign up for the That Was Hell email newsletter and start every week listening to This Is Hell. Maybe you're enjoying your favorite beverage and your new This Is Hell coffee mug or you're browsing through a book we gave you for dropping by This Is Hell office hours on Wednesday nights. Suddenly, you'll click on your inbox, and just like that, you've got links to this week's entire This Is Hell, all the separate interviews, correspondence reports, organized and ready for your listening and sharing pleasure. Sign up now. Now for the That Was Hell email newsletter at thisishell.com. Start your week by listening to and sharing This Is Hell. It's time for nasty, gnarly, nauseous, naughty, nerdy, icky, drippy, sticky, goopy, gloppy, globby, gory, rotten history. In 1505, 513 years ago, in the Camonica Valley in the Alpine area of northern Italy, seven women and one man were burned to death on the order of a Roman Catholic inquisitor who had accused them of injuring people and livestock by using satanic witchcraft to cause a drought. So, total beef friggin' In the 15th and 16th centuries, witch trials were a regular occurrence in that part of Italy. I'm betting Italy didn't have a monopoly on witch burning. In that part of Italy, hundreds of people were executed and even more were imprisoned, which I guess is a relief, while clerics complained that people chronically failed to show up at Mass on Sundays and otherwise follow Catholic religious practices, which, in the tradition of the Catholic Church, 
can always be fixed by a good witch burning. Through or Those centuries had passed since the Emperor Constantine made the cult of Christianity the official religion of Rome, and what a cult it is. And even though the Catholic Church was long established in Italy, many people in rural areas still clung to the ancient polytheistic traditions once dominant across the Italian peninsula. Such beliefs would remain especially persistent in the Italian South, where secretive occult practices were artfully intermingled with Catholic ritual persisting well into the 20th century. In other words, burn a few witches... And you'll see how quickly they start coming to Mass, literally paying, praying for their lives. Not that the Catholic Church was some sort of militant religion terrorizing the public in order to get people to join. Don't get me wrong. Don't get the wrong idea of what I'm trying to say here. Instead, tune in next week when we talk to journalist Catherine Nixie, author of The Darkening Age, The Christian Destruction of the Classical World. Apparently, just like the Taliban destroyed centuries-old Buddhist shrines, Catholics destroyed the world that preceded them. Find out more next week when we talk with Catherine. In Rotten History, 1757, 261 years ago, at Palashi, about 100 miles north of Calcutta, in the Indian region of Bengal, Colonel Robert Clive took some 3,000 troops of the British East India Company into battle against an Indian army of more than 40,000, an army which was led by the last independent ruler of Bengal, Nirab Siraj ud Dola. And if he was the last one, I'm betting the rotten history will not end well for Narab Siraj ud Dala. One year later, Siraj, or as I like to call him, Narab, Narab had laid a siege to Calcutta and successfully captured it from British control. In retaliation, Clive, or as I like to call him, Clive, now sought to defeat Narab at Palashi, remove Narab as Bengal leader, and replace him with a compliant Indian general named Mir Jawar. Classic British Empire move. Clive's troops were massively outnumbered, but they had superior weaponry. The Brits attacked in the morning, and as the fighting got underway, it was interrupted by a thunderstorm. The rain soaked in the gunpowder carried by Narab's troops and left it useless, but Clive's men managed to keep their own powder dry in more ways than one with waterproof covers and they advanced with guns blazing Narab panicked hopped onto a camel and rode away leaving his men to flee in all directions quite an exit for the last independent ruler of Bengal 500 of Narab's troops were killed while Clive lost only 18 of his own troops Clive then saw to it that the British compliant Mir Jawar was installed as the British puppet in Bengal, and the episode would lead directly to the expansion of British colonial rule across India. And that British rule would only last for another 190 years until 1947 and the collapse of the British Empire following World War II. That British rule would be challenged and toppled in India by one of the most inspiring leaders humanity has ever known, the incredible and admirable Mahatma Gandhi, who famously said, I hate Tottenham because I'm an Arsenal fan. I hate Chelsea because I'm a human being. Truly words to consider, contemplate, and live by in this era of Trump in rising authoritarianism. That's Rotten History, and this is hell. You can rate This Is Hell on Facebook. I will tell you about that a little bit later. Let me put this aside for now. Okay. This week's question from hell is... 
What's it going to say on America's Tombstone? What's it going to say on America's Tombstone? All replies get right on air during the next hour of this week's This Is Hell. Our favorite wins a copy of a book we will be featuring during that hour. Thomas Frank's Rendezvous with Oblivion reports from a sinking society. Again, the question from hell is, what's it going to say on America's Tombstone? Leave your response now at our Facebook page, facebook.com slash Radio. Listen during the next hour of the show to hear all the responses and to see if you have one. Coming up on this week's This Is Hell, a history lesson and on how identity politics got co-opted by those who were diametrically opposed to its inclusive and collectivist policies and politics, the last 10 years in U.S. politics and how it created one horrifyingly easy path for the re-election of Donald Trump to a second term in office. Some of the biggest corporations in the U.S. have stolen billions of dollars from their workers as part of their business model. And during a moment of truth, Jeff Dorchin presents Kanye's Choice Part 3, The Dumbening and the Smarting. All that plus listener feedback, what Alex has been up to on social media, what's on our Patreon podcast this week. We'll ask and answer the question from hell. And we've got a bunch of people we want to thank for supporting This Is Hell and sharing the show online. Maybe we'll get to twist off knowledge and, of course, what's happening on upcoming episodes of This Is Hell. Alternative to alternative radio, independent from independent media, This Is Hell. Identity politics are not what they used to be. They've been co-opted and controlled by politics that are the exact opposite of what the originators of identity politics believed. Here to explain, Assad Haider, author of Mistaken Identity, Race and Class in the Age of Trump. Welcome to This is Hal Assad. Hi, thanks for having me. Assad is a founding editor of Viewpoint Magazine, a fantastic publication, an investigative journal of contemporary politics, and this is far more cool. Assad is a Ph.D. candidate in the history of consciousness at UC Santa Cruz and a member of UAW 2865, the Student Workers Union at the University of California. And that might be the best part of any bio I have ever read on this show, Assad. So congratulations on that. Thank you. All right. So uh, let me ask you first. Oh, yeah, here we are. I'm all over the place with my notes today. You write that in 1977, the term identity politics in its contemporary form was introduced into political discourse by the Combahee River Collective, the CRC, a group of black lesbian militants, including founding members Barbara Smith, Beverly Smith, we've introduced them, or we've interviewed them on the show in the past, and Demita Frazee, who wrote the influential collective text, A Black Feminist Statement. They did not believe politics should be reduced to the specific identities of the individuals engaged in it. As Barbara Smith has recently reflected, what we were saying is that we have a right as people who are not just female, who are not solely black, who are not just lesbians, who are not just working class or workers, that we are people who embody all of these identities and we have a right to build and define political theory and practice based upon that reality. That's what we meant by identity politics. We didn't mean that if you're not the same as us, you're nothing. We were not saying that we didn't care about anybody who wasn't exactly like us. To what degree were identity politics meant to be inclusive and to what degree are today's identity politics, in your opinion, exclusive? Well, it's hard to get any clearer than Barbara Smith was there in that interview. Uh, what, what she's pointing to is the fact that her organization at the beginning was founded by people who had participated uh, in a number of coalitions and a number of different left organizations. Uh, and they came out of that with the understanding that particular kinds of reductive understandings of identity had severely limited the emancipatory potential of those movements. So a feminist movement which conceives of all women as being white 
uh, a black liberation movement which con- which conceives of all black people as being men. These were very limiting kinds of identities. And of course, <clears throat> the, the classical example being a labor movement which conceives of all workers as being white men. Uh, so these reductive identities uh, prevented these movements from really achieving the goals of emancipation that they had set out. And so the idea of identity politics, as they had originally conceived of it, was that their specific identity as black women was the one that was excluded from these hegemonic identities. And so by asserting their right to organize autonomously, to have their own agency, uh, they were breaking that kind of structure of exclusion. And they were bringing out the possibility of undermining all the existing structures of oppression, which is why they say in that statement, if black women become free, then everyone becomes free, because that means undermining the very structure that lies at the core of everyone's oppression. This, by the way, I just want to say your book was fascinating because this has been a topic that we've been talking about a lot on the show. And you quote Demita Frazier recalling the emphasis the Kambahee organization placed on coalitions, saying, I never believe that Kambahee or other black feminist groups I've participated in should focus only on issues of concern for us as black women or that as lesbian, bisexual women. We should only focus on lesbian issues. Uh, it's really important to note that uh, Kambahee was uh, instrumental in founding a local battered women's shelter. We worked in coalition with community activists, women and men, lesbians and straight folks. We were very active in the reproductive rights movement, even though at the time most of us were lesbians. We found ourselves involved in coalition with the labor movement because we believed in the importance of supporting other groups. Even if the individuals in that group weren't all feminist, we understood that coalition building was crucial to our own survival. Why do we have the sense then that identity politics today is exclusive, working within a vacuum outside of any politics other than those that affect and are mo- uh, are about their identity, first and foremost? Well, there, I think there are a number of reasons. One is simply the fact that uh, social movements have been fragmented and uh, largely defeated since the uh, late 70s um, uh, in most of the uh, advanced capitalist world. And that's something that has to do with the restructuring of capitalism that came with neoliberalism. It has to do with what Stuart Hall called the authoritarian populism of uh, Margaret Thatcher and Ronald Reagan. And uh, we don't have a base of mass movements that sort of train people in the practice of coalition. And um, one thing to note is that coalitions uh, show you that identities are not fixed things, that you can't reduce people to their identities, and you can't reduce uh, politics to anybody's identity. In fact, uh, you know, Kimberly Crenshaw, who is well known for introducing the term intersectionality, she points out in one of the articles uh, that uh, elaborates on the term that even just what we consider to be a unitary identity group is in itself already a coalition is already composed of all kinds of people who are uh, defined and determined by a multiplicity of traits, even if you've just defined them according to one trait. Uh, and so right now, since we're, 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 we've lost an anchor in mass movements, we've lost the idea that politics uh, should be driven from below rather than just being a contestation between two different leaders of an elite uh, mainstream political party. We've lost that idea and we've we've come to rely on very reductive understandings of our identities because that's become the way that we gain access to our politics. That's the, by, by asserting our particular identities and claiming to be injured 
on the basis of our identities, we can demand protection or recognition from the state. And that's what our politics has been reduced to when we when we lose that connection to mass movement. So how much then do identity politics limit our identity? And are we doing that to ourselves simply because that, as you were just saying, is the only way that we can have an impact on the political system as it stands right now? Well, uh, I think that um, the sort of reductive understanding of identity that is very prevalent now, which, um, uh, which, which reduces politics to just an expression of who you are, and who you are can be determined in many different ways. And even if you have an intersectional understanding of who you are, the idea that that somehow determines uh, the way that you think politically or the way that you act politically is a highly misleading way of understanding politics. Because we know that uh, many people who come from marginalized identities can be absorbed into the existing power structure and can uh, engage in the kind of po- political practice, the kind of policy making that's highly destructive to uh, the communities that they are either coming out of or now claiming to represent. Um, uh, th- there, are, there are many examples of this, and we, we just had uh, eight years of an example with Barack Obama. Uh, why is it that the Black Lives Matter movement had to arise under the uh, uh, regime of the first, first black president? Um, that's an indication that the identity of an individual politician doesn't lead to structural political change. Uh, even if you know this was a this was an uh, it was a major turning point, uh, but the fact that uh, it came to be seen as a substitute for mass movements is why Black Lives Matter had to happen. Something had to happen from below to actually challenge the persistence of racism that um, so many people uh, had assumed was uh, adequately challenged by the election of a black politician. How much then is Black Lives Matter reclaiming the Combahee uh, River Collective's uh, meaning, the original meaning of identity politics as a collectivist response to the the problems of capitalism that we have today? I think that it it was a movement with uh, many different tendencies, and um, it has gone through a particular particular kind of evolution and has faced um, the challenges that social movements face in the United States. Um, I think uh, that there was, uh, in, in, in a strong sense, a return to the kind of um, mass-based coalitional practice of the Combi River Collective. Um, I don't know what direction that's taking now and what direction it will take in the future. Um, and it's just as before in the Black Freedom Movement, there were many different tendencies and some led in a in that kind of coalitional, emancipatory, mass organizing direction, and others led in an elite leadership kind of direction that often rationalized itself with ideologies of racial unity, the reductive, essentialist kinds of understandings of identity, and those exist now too. And so in any social movement, you see contradictions and antagonisms, uh, and uh, it's uh, um, it's important to recognize those, I think. And we'll get back to that idea of the black misleadership class, as uh, Black Agenda reports, uh, uh, Glenn Ford calls it. But uh, you write uh, for the uh, Combahee River Collective, feminist political practice meant, for example, walking picket lines during strikes in the uh, building trades during the 1970s. But the history that followed seemed to turn the whole thing upside down. 
Then you quote historian Salar Mahandesi explaining what began as a promise to push beyond some of socialism's limitations to build a richer, more diverse and inclusive socialist uh, politics ended up exploited by those with politics diametrically opposed to those of the CRC. What were the politics of those who co-opted the CRC and the CRC's call for a more inclusive socialist politics and turned it into a more exclusive identity politics? Who co-opted those identity politics? Well, I mean, the the history that takes us through the 80s and 90s uh, in terms of the use of the word, of these words, identity politics, is a really complicated one, which is going to take another book to explain. Um but uh, what we can, I think that the term saw a real mainstream resurgence uh, with the 2016 primaries, and that's I sort of make a jump, um, a historical jump, in order to show the instability of the term. That is, that it was introduced uh, as a kind of um, uh, emancipatory radical term, and recently, with the, a lot of the discourse around the Hillary Clinton campaign and the opposition to the Bernie Sanders campaign, it, it was used as a way specifically to undermine any challenge to the hegemonic ideas of the, of the mainstream of the Democratic Party. Uh, and in this context, it became totally uprooted from its origins. And um, I think there are basically, we could identify two different ways that people meant uh, the word uh, or the term. Uh, one would be that it's just anything that has to do with race and gender, which is either seen in opposition to class or seen as something that has to be added to class or something of that kind. And then the other was the one that we've already been discussing, which is that your politics sort of uh, emerges from the foundation of your identity. And, you know, every time the term was used in the mainstream media, in uh, think pieces and so on, it seemed to take on a different meaning, sometimes different meanings within the same article. Um, but neither of these meanings obviously uh, was was uh, resonant with the very specific kind of meaning that the Combi River Collective had. So I think that the way that it's become a kind of floating term now uh, is, has has allowed it to be used in a kind of weaponized way in order to attack political adversaries. And the fact that Hillary Clinton represented uh, a continuation of the kind of neoliberal and militarist legacy of not just the Obama years, but also the preceding Bush years and the, the Bill Clinton years, years before that, uh, that became uh, suppressed, that was hidden underneath uh, the discourse of identity politics. And the, and the equation of identity politics with some kind of civil rights agenda. And so the 2016 primaries were, were in, in many respects, a turning point in that uh, a politics that had to do with um, opposing racism and sexism became uh, separated and even turned into an opposition to a politics that was about overcoming economic inequality. And that's not how it was conceived before. Did the Hillary Clinton campaign then weaponize identity politics? Well, I mean, Hillary Clinton uh, made these tweets about privilege, used the word intersectionality. Uh, so there was, a, there was some direct appropriation. Uh, her communications director, who I quote in the book, said on, uh, I think, on MSNBC, it's all about identity on our side now. Uh, and I think a lot of pundits, a lot of people in the mainstream media 
um, uh, really adopted that language, often explicitly t- using the term identity politics um, as a way to say that, you know, um, I think I'm far to the left of Bernie Sanders, but one of the significant things about the Sanders campaign was that it presented a challenge to the existing political discourse in this country. It, it, it introduced a lot of new, young people to the word socialism. It introduced the idea that you could have a, uh, a political agenda that was not simply reduced to reshuffling the existing economic and political elite. Um, and that was something that um, the, the Hillary Clinton campaign and the liberal uh, intellectuals and intelligentsia were trying very hard to suppress. So how much does the identity politics, as defined by the uh, Hillary Clinton campaign, uh, how much does it support or uh, endorse the uh, idea of the elite? How much does it help? Uh, how much does it feed into the idea of an elite? Well, uh, uh, it's absolutely a kind of politics which is which revolves around individuals, and uh, the uh, identity politics is understood to be um, uh, an expression of the rights of an individual according to their particular identity, and that means that um, achieving, as I was saying about Obama, and the the, the same holds true of Clinton. Uh, achieving uh, any kind of victory against racism or sexism means diversifying uh, the ruling elite. And um, that doesn't do anything uh, for the mass of working people who belong to one of these particular identities, however they're conceived. I mean, um, the kinds of programs that, uh, that, that are required for overcoming racism and sexism are programs of structural change, and they're programs that will involve also economic change, though they're certainly not restricted to it. Uh, but they, they, none of that change can be achieved by, uh, uh, by diversifying the ruling elite. The ruling elite itself has to be challenged. How much does uh, identity politics fail to address institutionalized racism? Well, um, it, it's a significant... Um, it, there's, first of all, this factor of the individualization that I was just talking about. Right. Second, there's um, a sense in which understanding race in identity terms reproduces the kinds of ideological categories that are created by racism. And uh, what we have to understand is that racism, uh, is that race is socially constructed, and it's constructed by racism. It's a central part of American history, uh, which I go into in my book. Um, It comes out of the uh, uh, sort of complicated transformations in migrant forced labor in uh, all the way back to the 7th 17th century in colonial Virginia, the formation of racial slavery, uh, the, the, the changing in categories of indentured servitude, that's the, that's the, the kind of um, history that categories of race come out of. And if we understand race as just an attribute of a person, something that we can just see based on the color of skin or, something, or, or, or other physical characteristics, 
we're, we're, we're reproducing the racist discourse that was invented to, ra- to rationalize uh, racial oppression. Uh, we're reproducing the kind of pseudoscience that European colonialists were using to justify their domination of the non-Western world. Um, and so one of, the, one of the things that we really need to do in order to oppose racism is break out of this kind of racial ideology and understand how race is historically socially constructed. Is the way identity politics are applied today and applied during the Hillary Clinton campaign a way in which class issues can be erased and dismiss critiques of neoliberal globalized capitalism? Yes, but I think also, you know, uh, I think that identity now, I think that the way that the Combahee River Collective talked about identity politics was some was a specific intervention into a specific uh, situation that they encountered in mass movements and political practice. I think that identity as a general category to explain race and gender is not adequate. These are really specific social relations with really specific histories, and you have to look at them in their specificity and not subsume them into some general thing called identity. And uh, to just have a kind of list of race, gender, and class, as though these were all different, you know, um, parallel or intersecting lines, that doesn't adequately understand um, how any of them operate and how they are articulated together into one society, how they're connected into one social structure. Uh, So that kind of way of uh, you know, reifying these categories of, of, of turning them into kind of empty abstractions. Uh, that's how this opposition gets created between race and gender on the one hand and class on the other, or turning class into an identity in itself. N- none of these things should be understood that way. Uh, we, what we actually have to do is look at the society as it, as it exists and look at the relations that constitute it and look at the, the the, the ways that they come together into one social structure, and then we'll find that it's never in isolation. You never have racism in, in isolation from economic exploitation and inequality. You never have racism in opposition from particular uh, patriarchal understandings of the family, for example. Um, these things are part of one process, one historical process and one social structure. And so by turning them into empty abstractions, it then becomes possible to pit them against class. But uh, that doesn't explain any of these things, and it doesn't help us to tackle any of these uh, problems. We are speaking with Assad Haider. He is author of Mistaken Identity, Race and Class in the Age of Trump. You can go to our website, thisishell.com, and click on the title of the book, and it takes you directly to the publisher's website where you can purchase the book. You write as the historian Jacqueline Dowd Hall elaborates in her analysis of the long civil rights movement. Martin Luther King Jr. has been rendered an empty symbol, frozen in 1963. Through selective quotation, Hall observes the uplifting rhetoric of his speeches have been stripped of its content, his opposition to the Vietnam War through an analysis linking segregation to imperialism, his democratic socialist commitment to unionization, his orchestration of the Poor People's Campaign, and his support for a sanitation worker strike when he was assassinated in Memphis. How does this stripping of the content of King's speeches and writing undermine the more inclusive identity politics of, say, the Black Panthers, who at the time, according to Black Panther leader Kathleen Cleaver, 
Beaver, you, you quote writing, we organized the Rainbow Co- Coalition, pulled together our allies, including not only the Puerto Rican Young Lords, the youth gang called Black Pea Stone Rangers, the Chicano Brown Berets, and the Asian Red Guards, but also the predominantly White Peace and Freedom Party and the Appalachian Young Patriots Party. We posed not only a theoretical but a practical challenge to the way our world was organized, and we were men and working men and women working together. How does the stripping of content from King's words undermine the idea of identi- identity politics that offer a collective response? Well, one thing that shows you is that really across the spectrum, I mean, you named um, uh, two different, uh, uh, you, you, you named on the one hand Martin Luther King, who's associated with the classical civil, civil rights movement, and then the Black Panthers, who are associated with black power, and they're usually put in opposition. And, you know, in, 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 to, to a large extent, they were in opposition over tactics and strategy, over the question of violence and so on. But one thing that they, were, that they really had in common was the understanding of the black freedom movement of the United States as part of a global movement against colonialism and capitalism. And uh, the, they, what they shared fundamentally was an understanding that uh, the movement in, against racism in the United States also had to be a movement against economic exploitation. It had to be a socialist movement. Both uh, Martin Luther King and the Black Panther Party use this word explicitly. Now, the fact that um, these figures are invoked today uh, is representing, uh, and, and, and both of them are. I mean, you, you find uh, references to Martin Luther King have become mainstream. Of course, uh, Martin Luther King Day was signed into law by Ronald Reagan. Um, and uh, the, the Black Panthers were often referred to um, even by uh, the kind of more elite, neoliberally oriented um, kinds of opportunistic uh, people who, who who took up Black Lives Matter uh, as a way to um, uh, launch a kind of uh, personal political career. Uh, the fact that these people talked that these that King and the Black Panthers talked about socialism gets completely erased, and. Uh, that's a very, I think, you know, you can see in some cases that's a very deliberate strategy, but it has a very powerful effect on people who um, have not had access to this kind of information. Um, obviously, this, not, this is not what gets taught in schools. We don't get taught that uh, Martin Luther King um, was talking about democratic socialism, was calling for uh, a general strike for in, in support of the sanitation workers in Atlanta um, just before he died, that he supported the Vietnamese struggle for self-determination. We don't uh, get a history of the Black Panther Party that tells us about how they raise money by selling copies of the Little Red Book, uh, about how they conceived of the Free Breakfast for Children program as a, specific, as a program of socialist political education. Um, these are things that we need to learn and we need to revive that tradition. We need to disseminate that information because it's very valuable, because it tells us about what the struggle against racism in the United States actually was and what it has to continue to be. 
You write organizations like the NAACP, led by the elites of the black community, had tried to distance themselves from the revolutionary possibilities of the struggle, shifting funding and resources away from economic issues and toward the battle against Southern legal segregation. As time went on, this became a significant limit on the scope of mass mobilization. To what degree is that shift away from economic issues, the end of the mass movement that started by that was started by the civil rights movement in the 1950s that had major successes with the Civil Rights Act of 64, the Voting Rights Act of 1965, did that shift away from economic issues end the mass movement as well as the more collective and cross-cultural state of identity politics? Well, after 65, everybody was thinking, you know, in the civil rights movement, we have to, we have to shift economic issues now because uh, we've achieved these uh, uh, formal legal victories against segregation, but segregation and racism continue to exist because of the economic structures of the society, because of the, the de facto segregation in the cities, because of um, the leadership structures, because of the, of, of the sheer fact of poverty. Um, and that's what, you know, Martin Luther King was totally preoccupied with in, in those uh, last three years. Um, and that's also uh, what started to become apparent with the emergence of uh, the urban rebellions, the riots in the, the inner cities of the North, um, and the uh, rise of organizations like the Black Panthers and, and others that were taking up the slogans of black power. Um, but at that point, um, the, the, the politics becomes complicated because um, having a movement against economic exploitation uh, when these victories had been achieved at the formal legal level uh, was a complicated prospect. They had spent o- over a decade Building, b- building a movement against segregation in the South, and all of a sudden needed a new strategy, needed a new language, and that's what King was working on, and you know, often butting heads with his associates in the Southern Christian Leadership Conference, and the um, other organizations, the Black Power organizations, uh, were facing extreme state repression, and some of the uh, limits of trying to take up a strategy of violent revolution that had worked in China and Cuba and so on, and applying it to the very different context of the United States. Um, and one thing that happened, that comes out of that is that black nationalism uh, sort of becomes an ambiguous political force. On the one hand, it's working to create uh, institutions that are not just uh, trying to integrate into the white society, but um, trying to uh, provide a parallel structure for people who had, for black people who had been excluded, um, and for a certain period, that is something that unites um, the uh, more elite members of the black community with the mass of the black community. But slowly, there's as as a kind of integration of society takes place, uh, especially at the elite level, as black mayors are elected, as black businessmen begin to rise. There, these interests are no longer in alignment. And so what you find in uh, the 70s is uh, that as neoliberal restructuring is happening, many black politicians are the ones who are imposing austerity on their own constituencies. And the idea of racial unity that came out of black nationalism is now, in this context, a kind of obstacle to seeing that antagonism. 
Uh, and so th this is something that uh, many participants in the uh, black nationalist movements recognize. For example, Amiri Baraka, who I go into in the book, uh, he faced this situation specifically in Newark. And that's what caused him to make this conversion from black nationalism, from cultural nationalism specifically, to uh, Marxism in uh, the early 70s. You write on the uh, on this lack of liberation and just replacing a black, white cop with a black cop, which I found you right now. Uh, you're setting up a situation for, in which the white cop it would be replaced by a black cop. For the Black Panthers, this was not liberation. On this lack of liberation, just replacing a white cop with a black cop, you write... That was clearly the situation we were getting into in the United States, as optimistic liberals celebrated the replacement of mass movements, riots, and armed calls with a placid multiculturalism. Over the course of several decades, the legacy of anti-racist movements was channeled toward the economic and political advancement of individuals like Barack Obama and Bill Cosby, who would go on to lead the attack against social movements and marginalized communities. How did Barack Obama lead an attack against social movements and marginalized communities? Well, you know, Bill Cosby actually came first uh, with uh, what was known as the pound cake speech, you know, going around uh, speaking uh, speaking to black communities in various places and talking about how the responsibility for um, the uh, the inequality, the racial inequalities that exist in American society lay with the culture of black communities. And, you know, he, it's the kind of things that, you know, pull your pants up, etc. And Obama did that himself with what was called the, the Popeye speech, in which he said, you know, you, he, speaking to a black audience, said you can't be feeding your children uh, cold Popeyes for breakfast. Well, uh, in both cases, uh, that's um, that's the kind of um, colonial men mentality which says that the people who have been exploited and subjugated uh, for so long are themselves responsible for their position because of the inadequacy of their own uh, culture and practices. And uh, that's, I mean, that just sort of is an illustration of how the uh, rise of an individual black politician um, doesn't lead to the overcoming of the structures of racism in a very direct way in the sense that he himself went out and you adopted this racist rhetoric uh, and um, he should be held responsible for that. You write, quote, in an analysis of the murder of Freddie Gray and the ensuing uprising in Baltimore, uh, past guest on our show, uh, Kianga Yamada Taylor, writing in her writes in her book from Black Lives Matter to Black Liberation. Actually, she argues we have broken in a fundamental way from the context that produced the classical vo vocabulary of the anti-racist struggle. Then you quote her writing. There have always been class differences among African Americans, but this is the first time those class differences have been expressed in the form of a minority of blacks wielding significant political power and authority over the majority of black lives. This raises critical questions about the role of the black elite in the continuing freedom struggle and about what side are they on. This is not an overstatement. When a black mayor governing a largely black city aids in the mobilization of a military unit led by a black woman to suppress a black rebellion 
We are in a new period of the black freedom struggle. How much does the reaction by the city of Baltimore to the shooting of Freddie Gray reveal either the failings of today's uh, revealed actually the failings of today's uh, identity politics? Well, um, I think what it reveals is that there has not been an adequate challenge to the structures of governance and the economic structures that are keeping these um, racist practices in place. Um, the the fact that uh, you have black leadership, we we as 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 we've been discussing, um, doesn't change the way that uh, that um, the lives of black people uh, uh, at a mass level are still fundamentally affected by the structures of racism, and that without a challenge to the um, authoritarianism of this society, the, the militarization of this society, and to the extreme economic polarization in this society, uh, it will be impossible for people to achieve any kind of social change. Uh, I, I mean, I think th- that's something that, uh, you know, we can debate all day back and forth about identity politics, about race and gender, and so on. But the thing is, any social movement is going to ultimately have to confront the state. It's ultimately going to have to confront the uh, the way that our society is structured so that a minority can rule and keep things the way they are. If you want to challenge the status quo, you have to challenge that. And to to turn that into some kind of opposition, an opposition between race and class or something like that, is fundamentally disabling and um, uh, self-defeating. Uh, so if you want to have an anti-racist movement, it has to involve a class struggle against the people who are, uh, who are, whatever their identity, who are part of the ruling structures and who are preventing social change from happening. You quote the author and black liberation supporter James Boggs, uh, husband of... Uh, the late, great Grace Lee Boggs, reflecting in 1993, shortly before his death, before the Civil Rights Act of 1964, we may have had the money, but we couldn't go into most hotels to buy a home outside of the ghetto. Today, the only reason why we can't go to a hotel or buy a decent home is because we don't have the money. But we are still focused on the question of race, and it is paralyzing us. What were or are the questions of race that you believe are paralyzing any black black liberation movement to this day? Well, I think it's precisely the way that it's turned into an opposition. You know, because uh, Boggs was pointing out that um, th- that it's not as though Boggs was just saying now it's just about economics. Now our our situation is meaning the situation of black people in his context in Detroit, um, that that situation is just the same uh, as that of poor white people. Um, It's pointing out that racism is now expressed through this economic inequality in in the way that before it was expressed through laws and um, uh, formal uh, exclusion. And so now that exclusion is taking the form of economic inequality. And there is a uh, racial disparity in wealth in this country. That's fundamentally the case. And, it can, and you know, that, that uh, uh, has to be a central 
um, uh, uh, that has to be centrally targeted by any social movement that wants to change the way that this country works. You know, uh, an, uh, a labor movement, a socialist movement um, that is worthy of the name is going to take that kind of racial disparity into account and is going to put it front and center. Uh, but also a movement against racism that wants to target against, when, that wants to target that racial disparity has to understand that if it's economically expressed, that also requires a movement that uh, is operating at the level of class. They cannot be separated, and that's that's what um, uh, the the that's the kind of paralyzing way of talking about race when it's turned into something that's separate from class and separate from economic structure. You write by coding demands that come from marginal or subordinate groups as identity politics. The white male identity is enshrined with the status of the neutral general and universal. We know that this is false. In fact, there is a white identity politics, a white nationalism. And as we shall see, whiteness is the prototypical form of racial ideology itself. Anti-racist struggles like those of the Combahee River Collective reveal the false universality of the hegemonic identity. To what extent do today's identity politics, even unintentionally, reinforce white supremacy? Well, um, I think, uh, first of all, it's, it's um, extremely illuminating to understand uh, whiteness as one of the primary forms of race, because that shows you exactly how, um, how constructed these categories are, just how much they are not part of the uh, expression of some individual's characteristics. Um, all these different groups that in Europe were part of racial hierarchies, like the English and the Irish, or Germans and Poles uh, migrated to the United States and over a long process all became integrated into one entity called the white race. Uh, that's what Theodore Allen called the invention of the white race and that's something that I uh, uh, quote in my book. Uh, that shows exactly how delusional the white supremacists and the alt-right are today when they talk about this category of whiteness. They're talking about a fictive construction, okay, uh, one that is real in the sense that it has real social effects, but has no basis in human physiology or even culture, okay? Um, and so I think that uh, often there's a tendency to simply take what the right says and invert it and uh, just accept the basic categories. So to respond to uh, what the alt-right is saying by uh, taking the category of white people and whiteness as though they are real things, um, that ends up reinforcing the uh, ideological structure that they're using to, um, to put forth a highly misleading uh, rationalization for a very dangerous political agenda. And so, once again, we have to be able to question the racial ideology, these um, empty abstractions of race, uh, and that applies to whiteness first and foremost.
And you were talking earlier and you write about how identity politics leads to a victimhood and reduces us and reduces people to that victimized belonging. Yet we see claims of being discriminated against and victimhood on the far right. And according to a poll recently done uh, last uh, October, I believe, by NPR, a majority of white Americans feel they are discriminated against. Do whites on the far right who claim victimhood also face the possibility of being defined by its victim victimhood and reduced to that victimized belonging? And if so, what does that mean for the white race? Well, first of all, I'll say on the question of victimhood, when I criticize a uh, political discourse that's based on victimhood, this is not like the conservative kind of uh, grandfatherly thing like, you know, don't, don't see yourself as a victim or stop whining, etc., no, this is from a very different perspective. This perspective is that if we understand ourselves politically as victims, that means that our politics is reduced to asking for protection from the state. But if we understand ourselves fundamentally as engaged in, uh, in as political agents who are capable of engaging in resistance, that's a very different kind of politics. That's the kind of politics that can actually lead to emancipation, that can actually lead to changing society. Uh, claiming victimhood and asking for protection will not change the existing structure of society. Um, <clears throat> now, of course, when, when the alt-right and uh, the various kinds of white supremacists we have today uh, claim the status of victimhood, they are being cynical. Uh, when when I, I don't know who exactly was uh, polled in the, with the numbers you cited, um, but we can presume that a lot of those people are um, are sort of uh, unable to conceive of a way to think about politics outside of asking the state for protection, outside of asking the state for some kind of redress of their grievances. Now, if there are poor white people or also middle-class white people who have found that their standard of living has declined, that they've become more precarious, um, I think they're often going to uh, reach for that kind of claim, that they are victims, uh, and they're going to uh, have a distorted understanding that they're the victims of uh, immigrants or black people or gay people or transgender people or whatever other group uh, happens to be uh, targeted in, in the, the media that they're, uh, that they're getting these ideas from, um, instead of understanding that actually what's happened is a, an, ob an objective political historical process in which um, the, the uh, ruling elite has changed their conditions of life. Um, and so... You know, with, with the alt-right, uh, they're using it cynically. Uh, they should be destroyed. Uh, with more mainstream people who are confused, they need to be re-educated, and they need to understand uh, that, uh, th that anti-racism is in their interest. And that's something that a, lot of that a lot of today's identity politics won't accept because it's fundamentally lodged in a moralizing kind of discourse. The thing is that the vast majority of white people, whether they voted for Trump, whatever, they need to be re-educated. Uh, they can't just be, it, 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 it may feel satisfying just to condemn them, but if we actually want to overcome racism, we have to deal with the fact that a huge proportion of this society 
uh, is constantly reproducing white supremacy, even sometimes on an unconscious level. And they need to be re-educated into opposing racism. And they also need to be recruited into an anti-capitalist program. And that's, that's ultimately going to have to be the same thing. We have been speaking with Assad Haider. He is author of Mistaken Identity, Race and Class in the Age of Trump. Assad is a founding editor of Viewpoint Magazine, an investigative journal of contemporary politics, and you should definitely find it online, Viewpoint Magazine. It's a fantastic publication. One last question for you, Assad, and it's what we call the question from hell, the question we hate to ask, you might hate to answer, or our audience is going to hate your response. Is it possible to be a critic of identity politics and not be supporting racism or sexism? Because past guests who have been critical of identity politics have been either labeled as racist or sexist or not realizing how much racism and sexism are still prevalent today. So can you both be a critic of identity politics and not be racist or sexist? It depends because it depends on how you understand the term. And, you know, some people ask me, well, why, do you criti- why did you frame your argument as a critique of identity politics instead of reclaiming its radical potential? And, you know, that's the particular uh, strategic decision that I made, a particular critical uh, uh, decision that I made, because I think that now the term has become so unstable that we can't just reassert its origins. Uh, I think I want to bring attention to its origins to show people that a different kind of politics was possible and that there was a very uh, valuable revolutionary kind of contribution to American politics that was made by the people who put forth this term. Uh, The way that it's used now is not anchored in that original usage. And there's something here that's happening now that we have to criticize. And uh, if we're going to criticize that, I believe, and uh, I think this is fundamental, it must be done from a perspective that is anti-racist and feminist. And it must be done from the perspective of saying, what is the most useful way of thinking and the most useful way of acting that can oppose racism and sexism? And is identity politics, in the the way that it currently exists, in the way that uh, people use these terms, is that actually useful for those goals? And uh, I think that in terms of its current usage, it is not. And that's why I choose to criticize it. If someone criticizes it because they think that uh, at some abstract level, class matters more than race, or that um, we have to uh, prioritize sameness over difference or something like that, then I think it's, there's a strong likelihood that the critique will be, will be racist and sexist. Uh, but I think if the critique starts from the point uh, from the perspective that we need an adequate language for opposing racism and sexism, is this an adequate language? Then that can be a constructive and valuable critique, which I hope I have aspired to do. Our guest has been Assad Haider. He is author of Mistaken Identity: Race and Class in the Age of Trump. Thank you so much for being on. This is Hell this week, Assad. Thanks for having me. Truly revolting radio, this is hell. How the hell did we get here? How do we end up with friggin' Donald Trump as President of the United States? What the hell will happen if he gets reelected like our next guest argues he will? And easily. We'll find out when we have the return of Thomas Frank, author of Rendezvous with Oblivion, reports from a sinking ship, 
I'm sorry, sinking society or a ship. It's a society and a ship. Tom is the founding editor of The Baffler and writes regularly for The Guardian. It's time to go to the update booth with Alex to find out what he's been up to on social media. So what have you been doing on Facebook, Twitters, all that kind of stuff, Alex? Uh, on Facebook, I shared a big report on incarcerated voter enfranchisement, not disenfranchisement, but an argument for enfranchisement by the People's Policy Project, which I recommend that site a bunch. Also, uh, our correspondent, Brian Meir, gave a damn speech to Brazil's Congress. I know. Can you believe that? Yeah, that's, that is wild. That's and, amazing. Uh, we have video of that, and it is subtitled in English, so go to our And they page. even picked up legislation on how they're going to deal with fake news because of his speech. Uh, hearing him, I, well, he was saying fake news in English, too, which was kind of funny, I know. too. Um, also, if you liked Assad Haider, conversation that we just had i shared a really good intercept piece by brianna gray who i keep trying to book on the show and i think that'll happen eventually who shared a really sharp piece on the internet about identity politics and the uh, and electoral politics that was really great uh, plus everything that we talked about this week was shared on facebook last week and all the interviews from each week will be posted every morning on the facebook page on uh, Twitter, talking with someone at the bar last week reminded me to give the hard recommendation to everyone uh, to look at our uh, to listen to our Tithi Bhattacharya interview that we did on why teacher strikes are working because they're sort of also remembering the social component of unions. Uh, and I gave the hard sell to someone at the bar, and then I gave the hard sell the next day to everyone on Twitter to listen to that interview. Um, also, if you've noticed, I've actually been a little worse at moderating the comments on our Facebook page since uh, earlier this week. I realized that what regular people think about almost anything has no bearing on what happens on this <laughs> world. So I was like, all right, if this is what you want to comment on our Facebook page, then uh, go ahead, champ. Uh, <laughs> finally, on the Instagram, and this is an announcement that I don't think I don't know if you'd mentioned it yet on the show, nope. uh, but. Uh, listener Tom G uh, made good with his promise, and he brought us a whole bunch of zero euro marks notes or a zero euro uh, notes with Karl Marx on them. It looks just like currency, except the part that says souvenir on it, but it looks like a zero euro note that we will be raffling off at the This Is Hell party. And so I posted photos of those and also let everyone know that uh, Chuck won't let me counterfeit them, which I'm really, <laughs> I, I really think we should counterfeit these. We can't get in trouble. It's not real money. <laughs> Oh, but they are, they're, they're beautiful. They're watermarked. They have all of the anti-counterfeiting ribbons in them. They're absolutely stunning. And yeah. I'm, I'm going to be over at uh, Carrie's Lounge today uh, after about 3 p.m. because they're having their 46th anniversary party. So if you want to see those uh, Karl Marx zero euro notes, feel free to drop by. And it's also the closing of the art show on the uh, Second Story Studios. So if you want to see them, feel free to drop yeah, by. Yeah, they're real cool. It's time for listener feedback. Madeline writes to us on Facebook at facebook.com slash thisishellradio. Madeline has a guest suggestion. Hi, Chuck mentioned that... uh, Hi, sorry. Chuck mentioned that someone recommended C. Riley Snorton as a guest, and I just wanted to second this suggestion. I'm an academic philosopher who works on social issues and agree that Riley's work on stuff like the intersection of race, masculinity, and prisons is super progressive and innovative in philosophy, and he would definitely fit alongside among the kinds of people you normally interview. I'd also recommend... Perry Zern, who is new faculty at American University and similar, similarly works on the intersection of race, gender, and prison. Perry has a new book coming out, uh, too, which I think is called Curious Minds. 
Thanks for the suggestion, Madeline. Uh, Perry, we'll, we'll keep an ear out for Perry's new book. If anyone has a guest suggestion, send them in, as we will be having an all-listener-requested guest show next month in July. And if we use your guest suggestion, we'll send you some This Is Hell advertising stickers. We got an email from Giorgio at the chuck at thisishell.com. Giorgio writes, Hi, Chuck. Alex, love your show. The craftsmanship and dedication <laughs> shine through. Something like this is sorely missing in my home country of the Netherlands. I might have some guest suggestions for you, but the topic is somewhat esoteric since it is since it is about the neoliberal turn in the Netherlands, a small and relatively insignificant country. Oh, come on, that's sad. But it might be of interest because my country is often lauded at, for its consultation economy, Polder model, where employees and employers come to policy agreements on a national level. In the late 90s, when the Dutch economy was growing at one of the fastest rates in Europe, pundits from all over the globe agreed that this was one of the key foundations for the Dutch miracle. Bill Clinton went out of his way to congratulate Wim Kock, our prime minister at the time, on this feat. His, uh, this focus on gradualism and cooperation has also informed the discourse on the political history of the Netherlands, often the image invoked, is one of gradual development without any conflict whatsoever towards a relatively ideology-free progressivism that has always been a part of the Dutch social fabric. Two scholars have recently pushed back against this narrative. The first guest suggestion is Bram Mellink, who unearthed a lively correspondence between a Dutch industrialist and the Mont. Pellerin Society, an early network of neoliberal scholars and activists who did not shy away from openly using the term. The second guest suggestion is Marin Udenampson, who recently defended a dissertation on conservatism in the Netherlands, more specifically on how Dutch politicians have used progressive values to scapegoat immigrants and duchies of mixed descent. If I'm not mistaken, Routledge will publish a retail version of his dissertation in the near future. Oh, and if you ever need a correspondent for the Netherlands, I'd be happy to oblige. Solidarity, Giorgio. Yes, a correspondent in the Netherlands. If you want to be a correspondent on This Is Hell, contact us. And this is definitely... Not too esoteric of a con- of a topic for this as hell. Thank you, Giorgio. We would definitely like to have someone as a correspondent from the Netherlands or whatever country anywhere in the world or even a small town here in the U.S. We want more correspondence. So thank you, Giorgio. And the, and you can contact, by the way, any of you can contact me to be a correspondent at chuckatthisishell.com. And definitely the best prime minister name ever has to be Wimcock. Although, oddly, that's Dutch. For Silvio Berlusconi. I don't know why. Jack emailed us a concise guest suggestion. Listen to a recent Counterspin episode on fair.org, and they had on Howard Bryant to talk about his book, The Heritage Black Athletes, a Divided America, and the Politics of Patriotism. It was a great interview, but I'd like to hear you give him the This Is Hell treatment. All the best, Jack in Atlanta. Ah, the old This Is Hell treatment. Ask ask guests questions you don't remember writing because at the time you were writing them, you were exhausted or drunk or stoned or exhausted from being drunk and or stoned. Got it. Thanks, Jack. Will, the skipper apparently of the Golden Rule Peace Boat, emailed us. Chuck, you are doing what I failed at. On September 11th, 2000, I had my first reality news radio show. Many guests like Parenti. Will doesn't say which one, but I'm guessing it's Michael. We've had Michael and Christian on. Cynthia McKinney, Mike Rupert, now deceased, 
Kathy Kelly, please consider a show with Bruce Gagnon, or Gagnon, of Global Network Against Weapons and Nuclear Power in Space. He predicted the space militarism long ago and is a leading scholar on the issue. By the way, I personally know somebody who was involved in space militarism since the 80s, so it's nothing new. Also, check out a Veterans for Peace project, VFP Golden Rule Project. We are recreating a sailing mission to Marshall Islands in 1958 to stop nuclear testing and war. Voyage of the Golden Rule is what it was called, and it was done by Albert Bigelow. Golden Rule was the boat that inspired Greenpeace Rainbow Warrior. Thanks for all you do. I am jealous. William. That's exactly the kind of email I love receiving by doing the show. An email from the skipper of the Golden Rule Peace Boat. Will, we are definitely going to contact you to see if we can get a live report from the Golden Rule Peace Boat. Uh, we'll get back and do some listener feedback in a little bit. So I will put all this aside for later. This is hell. And this week's question from hell is, what's it going to say on America's tombstone? What's it going to say on America's tombstone? All replies will be read on air following our next interview. And our favorite reply wins a copy of a book we are about to discuss. Thomas Frank's Rendezvous with Oblivion. Reports from a Sinking Society. Again, the question from hell is, what's it going to say on America's tombstone? Leave your response now at our Facebook page, facebook.com slash thisishellradio, and listen following our next interview to find out if you have won. Coming up on this week's This Is Hell, the last 10 years in U.S. politics and how it created one horrifyingly easy path for the re-election of Donald Trump to a second term in office. Some of the biggest corporations in the U.S. have stolen billions of dollars from their workers as part of their business model. And during a singular moment of truth. Jeff Dorchin presents Kanye's Choice Part 3, The Dumbening and The Smarting. All that, plus we might get back into listener feedback, uh, respond to some of the Facebook ratings that we got this week, uh, question from hell. We got a whole bunch of people we want to thank for supporting the Cicel and sharing the show online. Maybe we'll get to twist off knowledge, of course, what's happening on upcoming episodes of This Is Hell. Yes, another end of the world is possible. This is hell. How the hell did we get here? How did the last 10 years lead us to the political nightmare we now have of a President Donald Trump and the increasing likelihood that he will be re-elected? Here to help us figure all this insanity out, Thomas Frank is author of a brand new book. Just came out yesterday, Rendezvous with Oblivion, Reports from a Sinking Society. Tom, how do you come up with these happy-go-lucky titles? Uh, Mr. Chuck Mertz, I should ask you that very same question. <laughs> Shut up. Uh, find out more about Thomas at tcfrank.com, and you can follow him on Twitter at ThomasFrank underscore. So you start. Yeah, the underscore, that's important. <laughs> it is definitely. Why? Is there another Thomas Frank out there? There's got to be, right? There's like there's three of them. I, dude, it's confusing when I try to tag you on Facebook. It's always I'm always like, is that the right Thomas Frank or not? There's, not only are there three of them, but uh, one of them got into hot water. One of them is a, a, a two of them are actually um, uh, uh, journalists who write about politics <laughs> here in D.C. <laughs> and uh, two of them, other than me, that is. And one of them got in hot water last year uh, for some uh, to, to, I don't know doing something wrong at CNN or something like that. And uh, oh, I remember <laughs> this. You were blamed for it. News reports about it confused him with me. It was uh, it was crazy. It was very entertaining, though. That was really entertaining. I thought that was hilarious. I had people coming up to me saying, "Do you know what Thomas Frank said?" And I was like, "No, please tell me." 
<laughs> I know. They they put my picture on the uh, front page of the business section of the New York Times in this article about like CNN did this you know made th- did this wrong and did that wrong and they put my picture. I don't work for CNN. It's it was uh crazy that was the first question i started asking people was when did tom start working for cnn so did you save that did you get that laminated and put it oh, on i've wall? got it oh yes i've got it right here <laughs> i know that right sounds here like, in my office yes. it sounds exactly like the kind of thing you'd save so you write this is what a society looks like when the glue that holds it together starts to dissolve this is the way ordinary citizens react when they learn the structure beneath them is crumbling this is the thrill that pulses through the veins of the well-to-do when they discover there is no longer any limit on their power to accumulate what was the glue that held it together for so long? That's a good question. There there was, because, you know, of course, I don't write about that. <laughs> I don't write about the happy days when everything worked. I don't even know if they really existed, you know. That, that idea came to me when I was, um, I was doing a lecture in Sweden last year, and, uh, you know, and I, and I admire Sweden in all sorts of ways. It's kind of a wonderful place. And the um, the uh, the other guy was, you know, after I talked, they they had they brought out several people who also spoke. And one of them was saying we were talking about the possibilities for social democracy in the United States. You know, because Sweden has this robust social democ- democracy. And he said basically uh, it, it's impossible there because you once had a, a sense of social solidarity in the U.S. You know, like after World War II, uh, in the New Deal era. Um, you know that was that was uh, sort of defined by the experience in depression and in war. Uh, but th- he said that solid that sense of solidarity is ha- has completely evaporated in the United States. And I thought about that, and th- that's exactly right. Now I don't think that that makes it impossible for us to have um, social democracy in this country. But he is right about that 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 sense of solidarity. That, but then again, how do I know? I wasn't there in the 1940s. I wasn't born yet. I don't really know what it was like. I'm just taking his word for it. But uh, it sounded good to me. Uh, you write how this book, that your new book, uh, Rendezvous with Oblivion, covers the years of the Barack Obama presidency and the populist explosion that marked its end. It was a time when liberal hopes were sinking and the newly invigorated right was proceeding from triumph to triumph. What explains why the Democratic Party didn't, and to any degree still doesn't, recognize that a populist explosion has taken hold in the United States? Jesus, Chuck. <laughs> that's, that's, that's the question. Am I allowed to say that on your show? What's that? By the way, am I allowed to take the Lord's name in vain? Yeah, go ahead. The, that's the question of my lifetime, buddy. I, I have been writing about that for 20 years. Remember, I used to have an office down on the south side yes. and put out the Baffler magazine. Yep. And uh, I started writing about that in the late 90s. And uh, you cannot persuade them. You cannot talk these people into it. I mean, uh, what's the matter with Kansas? You know, it came out, that that was the question there. You know, it's like, look what's happening on the right. It, it is, the right has embraced the language of populism and is reaching out to working class white people outside of the South. This is happening and it is it is growing and it's, it's going to come soon to a town near you. And their response now, at first, they were like, "Oh, gee, that's you know, that's really interesting." But the 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 response of the kind of uh, intellectual class in this country, the kind of people that write, you know, the pundit bureau, I call them, the the response of those people was to say, "This is not really happening." 
this is not really happening. We don't need to worry about it. And they were saying that right up until the 2016 election. Okay. And, uh, you know, and then I wrote another book about it, about the Democrats this time, Listen Liberal. And they they are they went from being completely in denial about it happening to now saying okay it happened but there's nothing we can do about it we can't possibly win those voters back and we wouldn't want to even if we could because they have stained themselves disgraced themselves by voting for Trump and they will do anything say anything rationalize it in any way they can to avoid having to change to avoid you know the democratic party having to change they will do or say anything uh complete denial of what's happening or then going the entirely the other way and saying oh man the republicans are so have won these people so thoroughly that there's no way we can ever get them back there's nothing we can do about this it, it is it is incredible to me uh i just can't make a dent buddy and and i have been trying my whole life so why is uh, you know cuz one of the things is I always get this from people who are knee-jerk supporters of the Democratic Party. They always look down on populism. Why is populism looked at so skeptically when by definition it's merely supporting the concerns of ordinary people? In practice does top populism become something more nefarious? Uh God, another good question. It's like it's almost as though you've actually read my writing stuff. <laughs> <laughs> it's a trick uh, I do for research is I actually <laughs> decide that I should read the book that the people are actually going to be on the show to talk about. So popula- there's a, a lot of different ways of thinking about populism. And I'm from Kansas. Populism means something very specific there. Uh, and there's a long tradition of, you know, of, of populist politics in, in Kansas and hell in Illinois, too, and all over the Midwest. One of the definitions for populism that I think is is useful in understanding what you just asked is populism is um, it's it's a class based uh, uh, reform movement. It's a reform movement that is you know that that is based on sort of class anger. Uh, another way of thinking of it is it's a it's a reform movement that comes from the grassroots up, from the ground up. Uh, the, it, both of these are really distasteful to the kind of people who uh, the Democratic Party represents today, the kind of people who dominate the Democratic Party. You remember in Listen Liberal, it was about who does the Democratic Party serve? What is their number one constituency? It's the professional class. This is who they serve. This is who they are. This is the sort of worldview that they embrace, this kind of uh, affluent East Coast, uh, white collar, you know, went to good schools, uh, you know, have a lot of degrees, uh, member of professional association. That's the worldview that the Democratic Party embraces. And even when they agree with populism, I mean, historically speaking, even when people like that agree with populism on the issues, they still hate the populists. <laughs> they just can't stand them. Uh, it's it, this is it, historically this goes back a hundred years. Uh, because that's it's 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 you know there's a huge culture clash there. Populism comes from the bottom up. Populism comes from the people, whereas progressivism comes from this kind of uh, highly educated affluent elite that I'm describing. You know they've looked at they've looked at uh, they've read the newspaper and they've come to a conclusion about what they need to do about the world. Whereas populism is like comes from the facts of people's individual lives. 
Which gets back to the conversation we were having earlier with Daniel Bessner. Uh, he wrote an article at N Plus One about George Soros and uh, his kind of embrace of the elites. On our, our Patreon podcast this week, we played an interview we did with you in 2008 when your book, The Wrecking Crew, had just been published. In that interview, this is a month after the financial crisis. This is like right about when your essays start in your new book, Rendezvous with Oblivion. Uh, it was a month after but, the... Fi- but can I just say that there's a German version of this that's going to be much more... It's going to have like the whole over it, going back to my days at the Wall Street Journal. Oh, really? Back to oh, yeah, but it's only going to be in German. So sorry. Can you find out what Rendezvous with Oblivion is in German? I'm sure that's. No, what I'll it. tell you what it is. I'll tell you what the title. No, I won't tell you. It's not out yet. But it has a it has a completely different title. Oh, really? Oh, yeah. Because that Rendezvous with Oblivion, I'm making a a a, a a a play on a famous phrase of Franklin Roosevelt's. In Germany, they don't know that phrase. <laughs> I see. And it would be 76 letters long anyway. So, uh, <laughs> That's right. So, uh, so uh, this is a month after the financial crisis hit and a month before Barack Obama was elected president. Uh, and we discussed how the Great Recession created a crisis in conservatism and the idea of doing whatever is best for business is what's really wasn't best for everyone anymore. Why didn't that crisis lead to a collapse in conservatism? Why instead... Do we have a resurgence of the right wing? Did you hear my heavy sigh there, Chuck? <laughs> yes. It's, you know, I just, I, it's, it is frustrating to me to, to relive all this, but yes, that's, it, at first it did lead to a collapse in conservatism. Do you remember Tom DeLay was like thrown out, left Congress in right. disgrace, and George W. Bush, I mean, he left office to a, you know, a chorus of boos and hoots and, you know, hisses. And here comes Barack Obama, and he seemed like this um, at the time in '08 and '09. He seemed like this um, heroic figure. He seemed like a new Franklin Roosevelt, uh, and that's certainly you know that's the that's certainly what it looked like to me. Conservatism, though, immediately regrouped uh, and started calling itself by a different name. The Tea Party, they called themselves, and they did this almost immediately. Within, I think, within a month after Obama's uh, inauguration, you had the first Tea Party rally in a park here in Washington D.C. By the way, I went to it. I was working for the Wall Street Journal at the time, and I got wind of it and uh, went down there and watched it. And I thought it was, you know, I laughed at them in my in my column, but. It turned out because it was so transparent, right? Here's a bunch of lobbyists and people that work at, at right wing think tanks uh, pretending to be hard times protesters. It caught on. It caught on. I mean, and they they started having these rallies all over the country, and they reimagined themselves as a, you know as a, as a protest movement for hard times. And that in itself is like is an is an uh, incredible story. That was the story that uh, you know I wrote a whole book about that called uh, "Pity the Billionaire" because that's kind of what it was. You know, they're they're pitying, they're weeping, crying for for the billionaires who'd lost their shirts in the, <laughs> in the financial crisis, but uh, and who were you know liberals were calling uh, billionaires mean names and stuff like that. Uh, but that's how they did it, and it's the. The reason something like that succeeded is because there was no, you know, the reason that fake populism, which is what the Tea Party movement was, the reason fake populism is able to succeed is because there's this gaping absence of the real deal. Okay, and this is the same reason that Donald Trump was able to beat Hillary Clinton, you know. She, you know, it's exactly the same thing. There is no 
I mean, real, uh, true, honest, straightforward, correct voice for, uh, uh, you know, the, the crumbling middle class. I mean, you did have Bernie Sanders, but the Democrats having, you know, after Hillary defeated him, they were just like, you know, they wanted him gone. Uh, they didn't roll him out. You know, they didn't they didn't do what they needed to do. Instead, they ran the ultimate technocrat for president, the ultimate technocrat. I voted for her, by the way, but a populist, she was not. <laughs> I did not vote for it because in Illinois, I kind of knew Illinois was going to go for Hillary Clinton. I don't know why that is. I just kind of knew that. <laughs> so, <laughs> you, know, you knew that. <laughs> so uh, did, did we underestimate how racist the right wing black uh, <laughs> backlash would be to Obama's election? Well, the, the, the racism, I mean. I don't know if we underestimated it. That's that's been there for forever, and people on on my side have been writing about that stuff um, forever. Uh, I mean, that's that is there. You want to talk about 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 a, a subject that is where there's there's lots and lots and lots of analysis. Well, that's one. You know, there's been so many books about that. Uh, you know, that's so many so many newspaper columns. No, I don't think we underestimated it. Um, I think, uh, uh, I mean, it, it took all sorts of crazy forms. Birtherism, I didn't see that one coming. <laughs> you know, that was new. Uh, you know, it always takes, like, you know, there's all sorts of nutty things that you don't see coming. The idea that that, uh, that, that immigrants are, are, are have sparked a crime wave, uh, you know, where does that, where the hell did that come from? You know, the, Trump just... It, just made it up or something, but it, it caught on. Uh, so no, you know, you never foresee the details of it. So uh, you write that for a few, there were times of these were times of great personal satisfaction. The effects of what was called the Great Recession were receding, and affluence had returned to smile once again on the tasteful and the fortunate. The lucky ones resumed their fascinating inquiries into the art of the cocktail and the science of the grandiose suburban home. For them. Things transpired reassuringly as before. What yeah. should growing inequality throughout the Obama years following the Great Recession reveal to us about the economic and political system that we have in place right now that the Democratic Party continues to endorse? I mean, the fact that inequality grew while Obama was president and exactly. the Democrats were in control yeah. is uh, one of the I mean, that's a really important fact to wrap your head around, if you want to understand where we are today and, and why things have unfolded the way they are. Uh, unfortunately, this is a fact that is really uncomfortable for a lot of people. Uh, but it's, I mean, it is undeniable um, as, you know, you, the passage you just, and I, by the way, in the, in Rendezvous with Oblivion, this book that we're talking about, I, uh, I have some of the essays that I'm proudest of, or I should say one of them that I'm proudest of is my, I tried to write a history of the McMansion. Now, admittedly, it's not it's not a perfect essay, but I don't think anybody else has ever tried. <laughs> and uh, uh, I'm I'm really proud of that. But it's you know, we keep saying in this country, it's like okay, inequality has gone so far, it can't go any farther, and then it does. You know, and this is after uh, George Bush Senior went down. We're like, okay, the, the Reagan era is over, and then it's not, right? Bill Clinton deregulates the banks, and it just gets worse and worse and worse. And uh, Obama gets elected in '08, and we're like, okay, that's it. That's the turning point. We've reached the historical turning point. Not, <laughs> and it just goes on and on and on. And uh, you can look at this one of two ways. You can say, well, there's that means there's nothing anybody can do about it. You know, this is something that like. Uh, 
you know, history is doing and we don't understand and we don't know why it's happening. Or you can say, we do know why it's happening and we do know what to do about it. We just didn't do those things. <laughs> and uh, if you ask me, that's the second answer is, is, is the correct one. That's what, that's what Listen Liberal was, was all about, was the, you know, Barack Obama was given a perfect chance in 2008, 2009 to change the course that this country was on, a perfect opportunity. You just can't, you know, with the the recession, you know, he comes into office. It's like the transition between Hoover and Roosevelt. He comes into office at like the worst point uh, in this financial crisis in the Great Recession. Uh, He has democratic control of both houses of Congress. He has complete authority over the Wall Street banks, thanks to the bailouts, right? He has seats on their board because he's just bailed them out. He's in complete control of these guys. Um, he has uh, Rahm Emanuel at his side, the meanest, uh, what, how should I put this, the meanest SOB in American politics. This is a guy that knows how to get things done. You know what I mean? Even though the, most of the things he's done are really awful. Yes, but he gets them done. <laughs> he's a guy who, he, he, you know, I always assume that with a guy like that, you tell him what to do, you instruct him what to do, and he gets it done, you know, when yeah. he was working for Obama. So here's Obama with all of these things at his disposal, and he doesn't do it. He doesn't, he doesn't do what needs to be done. And, and by the way, and I'm very specific about what he should have done in, in Listen Liberal. It's, you know, it's not hard to figure out what he should have done differently. He doesn't do any of it. Or he does partial measures. He does half measures, you know, like his health care uh, reform was a half measure. His uh, stimulus was a half measure. His re-regulation of the Wall Street banks, you know, Dodd-Frank was a half measure. Now it's And now it's gone, you know, because he didn't – what Roosevelt did that made his – the New Deal permanent or almost permanent, you know, it lasted for 80 years. What What made that permanent was that he – the public loved it. You know, he built up constituencies for everything that he did. Obama didn't do that. Uh, you know, and he didn't uh, he didn't solve the problems. And yes, inequality, which is the sort of ultimate measurement, the ultimate way that we have to judge these these uh, politicians, continued as before on a gallop. But, all of the re- you know the gains of the recovery went to the very rich. What would you say to someone and, who says that's all that all the uh, all of his shortcomings were because the Republicans wouldn't let him do what he wanted to do? Well, that's uh, flatly not not true. I mean, that's just a way of rationalizing. Um, he had he had uh, democratic majorities in both houses, super majorities in both houses. <laughs> the super majority matters in the Senate, but he had that when he came into office. He had that. Uh, and like I said, like I, like I was saying, Chuck, even if he hadn't had that, there's ways to get your stuff passed. Look at Lyndon Johnson. It can be done uh, if, you, if, you, if you play the game. And he had, like I said, he had Rahm Emanuel with him. He's a guy that knows how to play the game. He, he could have got things done. You know, and it was so frustrating. But a lot, a lot of it didn't require Congress. Like I said, he had seats on the boards of all these banks. He could have fired the uh, all, the Wall Street, you know, the executives, gone into each bank and said, I don't like the way you – by the way, Roosevelt did this. There is precedent for it. I don't like the way you managed this bank during the, uh, during the, the run-up to the crisis. You're fired. He had the power to do that. He didn't do it. He had the power to do to demand all sorts of things. The Republicans, you know, they played him, yes, but he also – you know, a lot of the blame resides on his side. By the way, towards the end of his time in office, in my sort of – frustration with him. 
I started writing essays for, I was writing for Salon.com at the time, and I started writing essays about things he could do without Congress. You know, he didn't, by this time the Republicans had taken over Congress, and he really, it, it, it was the end for any kind of grand sweeping reform that he wanted to, to make. But I started calling around to policy experts in D.C. and saying, well, what can he do without um, Congress? You know, what can he do? And it turns out there, there's all sorts of things a president can do. The presidency is a hugely powerful office. It is an enormously powerful office. I'll just give you one example. It doesn't, because none of it matters anymore. I mean, making this argument, no one cares. Uh, but, uh, and I'm sorry, I shouldn't say that. Uh, this, is, this is an essential argument for, for that period of time. But, for example, Chuck, antitrust. Monopolies are against the law in this country. We just don't enforce the law. <laughs> Had Obama gone to his attorney general and said, I want you to start enforcing the Sherman Antitrust Act again. I want you to remake the economy of this country using the tools that we have at hand. I want you to shatter the Walmarts and the Amazons and the Googles and the Facebooks of this country. Can you do you have any idea how revolutionary that would have been? Of course, he didn't do that. He was in the pocket of Google and Facebook, and those, not in the pocket, but they were his best friends. Uh, you know, of course, he wasn't going to do that to them, but he could have done that. The Republicans could not have stopped him. Uh, another thing is prosecuting those Wall Street bankers. You know, he could have done that right up until the end. The statute of limitations had not run out. It was not ten years. Uh, and, you know, until the very end of his term, uh, and he could have set up a special task force and got that done and had some really spectacular high-profile prosecutions. It would have been on the front pages of every newspaper. He would have left office a hero. He didn't do it. I mean, there's all sorts of things like that that I came up with at the time that he could have done. And this is after he lost Congress. When he had Congress, he could have done anything. The world was at his feet, if you remember the climate at the time. In 08, the world loved this man. I mean, rallies of hundreds of thousands of people. We thought he was a new, uh, you know, a new FDR. Oh, well. How much did that inaction lead to the election of Donald Trump? I think a great deal. This is just now I'm 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 basically alone in arguing this, by the way. I don't I don't know of anybody else that, that, that thinks this, but I think that it led I think it led directly to Donald Trump, that Obama's failure to tackle the sort of great problems of the financial of, that were revealed by the financial crisis and the Great Recession, his failure to do, to do what needed to be done on these uh, and to revive the economy of, you know, in which these blue collar people uh, live their lives, that was hugely consequential. You, you know, you look at the map of um, counties that flipped from Obama in 08 to Trump, and it's a lot of places. And it's by and large, the, it's the in the states that uh, that Trump flipped that allowed him to win the presidency. Um, you know, this is what this really cost Barack Obama, I think, that <clears throat> he didn't deliver on what everybody thought he was going to deliver on. Uh, you can't just brush that off and say, you know, that 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 it, that it didn't make any difference. I mean, of course, we're all brushing it off, and we never want to talk about that. And but, in my opinion, that is enormously consequential. Uh, in fact, I, in some ways, um, the Obama movement in '08 and the Trump movement in 2016 are very are very similar. One was about hope, and the other was about desperation. Even on the issues, they were similar. Nobody remembers this anymore, but. One of the ways, that, and by the way, they both 
beat Hillary Clinton. I remember Obama in the primaries in 08. And one of the ways that Obama beat Hillary Clinton, nobody remembers this anymore, was promising to renegotiate NAFTA. You know, he pointed out at the time that there's an escape clause in NAFTA, and uh, you know, you, the the president is empowered single-handedly to withdraw from it and demand it, you know, and, and renegotiate the thing. That was Obama promised that, uh, and he. This is one of the ways that he was able to defeat Hillary Clinton and George W. Bush, of course. Um, and he never did it. A lot of things he never did, but he never did that. And here comes Trump in 2016, and. I'll be damned. He's campaigning on the very same promise, <laughs> the very same promise. And he actually he has made noises about doing it. We'll see whether he actually. I, the thing about Trump is he, uh, uh, you know, the guy doesn't know. The guy's utterly incompetent. He doesn't know what he's talking about. You know, when he, he criticizes these trade deals, it sounds it sounds good, and where everybody's angry about the trade deals, he has no idea how to renegotiate these things or what's actually in them. He doesn't even know. It just it just drives you crazy. So is that why we have is Obama's in action to what degree does that explain why we have currently a president, a senate, a congress, even a judiciary that all seem to support the same Wall Street that destroyed so many lives back in uh, you know 2008. Why do many still believe Wall Street can be our savior. Well, I don't think anybody believes that, but I think that the, that what happened is that the Democrats frittered away their <clears throat> their uh, their what, how would you call it their 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 brand their you know their brand identification uh, as the you know the party that holds Wall Street uh, uh, to account. They gave that up. I mean, that's who they have been from the beginning, from Thomas Jefferson. To William Jennings Bryan, to Franklin Roosevelt, to Harry Truman, to Lyndon Johnson, uh, it, it, that's who they were up until the day. I mean, up until the time of Bill Clinton, who of course deregulated the banks and had this great historic rapprochement between the Democratic Party and the banks. And here comes Barack Obama, and he made that link between them. I mean, do you think of all the banks that donated to his campaign in 2008. Um, his failure to get tough with these guys made it absolutely crystal clear in the public mind that they were not the party that holds these people to account. Now, he made a lot of good noises about it in uh, the 2012 campaign because he was running against Mitt Romney. <laughs> you know, you remember those ads? Yes. You know, he, he had a lot of fun kicking Mitt Romney around. Uh, but by and large, you know, the Democratic Party frittered that position away. And Trump, by the way, if you remember the campaign of 2016, pretended to be someone who would uh, uh, get tough with Wall Street. He, the idea is risible. It is a joke. It, you know, it is to laugh. But he did say it. He even <laughs> he even promised at the Republican convention. I was there, by the way. I heard him say this with my own ears. He promised to bring back the Glass-Steagall Act. <laughs> Donald Trump. <laughs> I mean, it's it's just like if you fell for that, I'm sorry for you. You know, I'm I'm really sorry for you. But he said it. He did. You know, and what made it possible for him to get away with that? It's because the Democrats had had blown it as a, as the party that holds these people accountable. 
We are speaking with Thomas Frank. He has a brand new book out, just came out yesterday, Rendezvous with Oblivion, Reports from a Sinking Society. I cannot wait to find out what the title is in German. Find out more about Thomas at tcfrank.com and follow him on Twitter at Thomas Frank underscore. Not the word, the actual underscore. So you write, let us think the unthinkable. Let us imagine Donald Trump's potential path to re-election as president of the United States. Reader, it could happen. We know it could happen because it has happened before. I admit that at the moment it is difficult to conceive how Donald Trump might turn that corner, as you point out Ronald Reagan did with the economy improving and George W. Bush did with being at war at the war against terror, but uh, the economy improving. And you ask, how could the nation possibly return him to Washington for a second term. Now, I'm horrible at making accurate predictions, but I think I still think that uh, Chicago got the Olympics in 2016, but don't tell anybody. <laughs> I'm horrible at making accurate predictions, but I think he will be reelected partly because since the end of World War II. Hey, by be- the way, I won the decathlon at that Olympics. <laughs> Did you? I remember you running around Washington <laughs> that imaginary, Park. That imaginary yes. Chicago Olympics. <laughs> you were awesome in the steeplechase, by the way. All presidents have been reelected except for those who chose not to run for a second term, or like President George H.W. Uh, Bush, their vote uh, was split between a third-party candidate who more embraced uh, the party's voters than others, and uh, one party's voters than others. And there's plenty more reasons, like my belief that the Democrats will offer for president and other centrists from the professional elite class like Joe Biden, Eric Holt, Andrew Cuomo, Terry McAuliffe, Kamala Harris, Cory Booker. So now more than two years out of the next presidential election, what are Trump's chances at winning re-election at this point in time, in your opinion? Well, so I wrote that article um, at the the, the tail end of 2017, and uh, it was published early this year and uh, in Harper's Magazine. And... um, what I describe in there is still very slowly coming to pass. Um, so uh, there are some caveats to you know my scenarios for Trump's reelection. Um, some caveats. One is that he doesn't get impeached. Uh, you know that they don't uh, that that, that uh, uh, Mueller doesn't doesn't uh, you know winds up not being able to uh, throw him out of office or whatever how, however you want to put it. That he's not overthrown in a military coup. That sort of thing. Um, that he the idea is that he competes for the presidency against the Democrats by ordinary means. Uh, he doesn't cheat, uh, and and he wins. Um, and my argument is based almost entirely on the economy, uh, and that the economy continues to improve, and that one of these days wages for ordinary workers start to go up. We haven't reached that point yet, but there are um, there are hints of it in the newspaper all the time that there's a, a, a you know here and there you see in this country labor shortages and um you know employers who don't know what to do they you know they and 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 basically the answer is uh employers they're going to have to raise wages uh sooner or later and when that happens you're going to you're going to sort of trigger the effect that you had in the late 1990s um, I used to be on your show in the late 1990s do you remember that yes sir but back when Bill Clinton was president and the economy was booming, and uh, people loved that man, uh, Bill Clinton's approval ratings hit 70%. And this is while Bill Clinton was being impeached. <laughs> he was in the process of being impeached. And the reason that his approval ratings were so high is because you had very close to full employment. 
in the economy, the closest we've ever had, or the closest we've had since the 1970s. Back in the 60s and 70s, it used to be common uh, for wages to go up and unemployment to be really low. Uh, but then it, it hasn't happened since then except for once, and that was in the late 1990s. And th- that's why Clinton was so massively popular and why you have this sort of haze of universal prosperity that hangs over the late 1990s. And when everybody remembers back to that time, they think of this time of incredible the booming economy, the roaring economy. And it is very possible that we will have that again um, very soon. The the trick for Trump is to have that go until, uh, you know, until election year, you know, until 2020. Uh, I don't know if that's, if he can pull that off or not, but assuming that he does, yeah, he's going to have a real good chance of getting reelected. It's going to be really hard to beat him. And the reason for that is because the, the, the kind of white working class voters who are the swing constituency now in these states like Pennsylvania and Michigan and Iowa that are now the swing states and this isn't that crazy those are the swing states now Wisconsin <laughs> I know that those are the swing states now that that uh that those people will look at Trump and say he delivered for me he promised he would he would uh you know he would do something for me and he delivered now what I'm describing, you know, economically, wages going up is, let's be real clear about this, it would be um, short term. It would be an illusion because Trump hasn't done the things that you need. Of course, Trump hasn't done, neither did Obama, do the things that you need to do to allow blue collar workers to really participate in a growing economy and those such things as making it easier to form unions, you know, bringing, reviving unions again, raising the minimum wage, that sort of thing. Trump hasn't done any of that, of course. Uh, Obama didn't do any of that. Uh, And uh, so, you know, wages will go up, but they're only going to be going up because of a roaring economy, not because workers actually have power again. Uh, So it will be illusory. It'll be deceptive. But I argue that it might be enough to get him reelected. And then I talk about the things that the Democrats have to do to prevent him from getting reelected. Right. Let's, uh, but first of all, uh, according to a report at Bloomberg News on June 1st, average hourly earnings increased 2.7% from a year earlier, more than projected, while the jobless rate fell to 3.8% from 3.9% to match April 2000, and, uh, April 2000 at the lowest since 1969. Well, that sounds really, that sounds really good. Uh, but, I, you know, these things... They go, they go up and down and up and down and up and down. You need to see uh, growth consistently, uh, wage growth that goes that you know that keeps going and keeps going and keeps going, and then you'll then you'll see <clears throat> then you'll see what I'm talking about. Um, also, it has to you have to adjust for inflation, Chuck. I'm really sorry to tell you that. Damn it! Damn it! I was hoping I had something there for you. So does does Trump or do the Republicans deserve credit for any wage growth? Because they do boast of companies using oh, tax cuts to give workers they don't bonuses. Take the credit. Right. No, this is of course he doesn't deserve any credit. Oh, I'm sorry, I shouldn't say of course. Your listeners don't know that. Uh, my opinion is that he does not deserve any credit for it. The, 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 if you want to talk about who is the the hero who made this possible, it's Janet Yellen, the former Fed chairman who kept interest rates low. Uh, you know, through the Obama years and into the Trump years. Now, then Trump replaced her last at the very end of last year uh, with another sort of, you know, a new guy at the Federal Reserve. We aren't we don't know that much about him yet, but uh, we uh, I suspect he will continue what Janet Yellen was doing, which is keep interest rates low and allow the economy to gather speed. And um, 
these are the people who are largely responsible for this. Now, Trump could. Uh, another thing I say in the in, in the story is that uh, if Trump does even the smallest kind of federal stimulus, uh, he will he will get uh, robust wage growth. And the stimulus that he was always talking about was, of course, the trillion dollar infrastructure plan. Uh, I don't know if that's going to happen. I mean, look, you and I know you don't. You know, spend a whole lot of money on stimulus when the economy is already booming. <laughs> but you do it if you want to get reelected, <laughs> and I suspect he will do it. So, uh, so can only point. Nixon go to China? Can this only Trump go, go to North Korea? This is all straight out of the Nixon playbook. That is exactly right, including his thing with North Korea. That was Nixon goes to China, and only yes. then a Republican can create a new New Deal. Uh, yeah, but it wouldn't be the it wouldn't be the real thing, of course. But look, there's a danger here, and the danger here is that um, you remember Steve Bannon before he, you know, before he got defenestrated uh, <laughs> here in Washington. I really wish he would have been. It. By the way, that would have been awesome. <laughs> yeah, but he used to talk about it. Uh, you know, we're going to make the Republican Party into a workers' party. Trump himself said that. And we're going to, you know, we're going to rule for for years and years and years. We're going to become the dominant party in the system. And and, and everybody talks about that. Karl Rove used to say things like that. There's lots of Democrats that say things like that. You know, um, what's the term that the Democrats use? The um, uh, coalition of the uh, ascendant. You know, they, everybody thinks they have a plan for making their party into the dominant party for for decades to come, but. If Trump appears to deliver, you know, does some kind of, 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 I mean, it just seems unthinkable, right? But if Trump does deliver for blue-collar people, there's a, there is a chance that Bannon's dream could come true, as, as obscene as it is, uh, as ridiculous as it is. By the way, Bannon is an interesting figure to me, he, because he's alternately um, says things that are very smart and then incredibly ignorant, you know, <laughs> and often in the same breath. Uh, really interesting guy. Uh, you know, where do people like that come from? Anyhow, but uh, I, I think it is uh, it Goldman is Sachs. That's where they come that from. Trump can pull this off. I was just saying that Golden, Goldman Sachs is where those people come from. Oh, of course, right, 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 right. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> hey, uh, you, you quote uh, Karen Nussbaum, the executive director of Working America, which canvasses working class neighborhoods around the country, saying if Democrats just want to keep piling on Trump, that will be the way to get Trump reelected. Why does piling on Trump not work? Because I think Rachel Maddow is listening right now. Okay. Uh, piling on Trump works as uh, a matter when you criticize Trump. Uh, that works to a certain degree. The the piling on is the thing that I mean. I criticize Trump all the time. I call him all sorts of names, you know, um, in this book. Uh, the piling on is the thing that uh, that gets me in two different ways. One is that there, there's this I call it a parade of agastitude, uh, you know, in the uh, Washington Post and the New York Times and and everywhere else, where they just won't. They are so determined to get this guy that it, it's just obvious you know that they that they will not be fair to him and it, it's i mean it is obvious to me and i'm really liberal i mean it's obvious to my to my kids they read the newspaper and they're like what the hell you know and we're we're a very liberal family uh the second thing that's and i think this is more important is that they don't stop with criticizing trump they want to criticize his voters 
Uh, and that's what Karen Nussbaum is talking about in that quote. It's like going door to door. The idea of going door to door and shaking your finger at Trump voters, <laughs> scolding Trump voters, which is an extremely bad idea, uh, you know, because these are people that you should be trying to win back. You know, a lot of them switched from Obama to Trump. I personally know people that voted for Obama twice and then voted for Trump. And uh, these are people that can be won back and that should be won back. There should be, you know, the Democratic Party, that's what they should be trying to do is get these people back. Uh, to to scold them, as so many pundits want to do and, in fact, enjoy doing, uh, that is <clears throat> that is a path to destruction right there. The funny thing is is that, is that it's it's satisfying for a lot of people. It's satisfying to just scold people. It's in some ways it's that's as satisfying as winning an election. I call it a utopia of scolding. That's my <laughs> phrase, Chuck. I was hoping that was going to be the name of your next book. Yeah, actually that's a great idea. The utopia <laughs> of scolding. Now we just have to know what I bet they have a word for that in German. It's like in Schadenfreude. Yeah, I'm sure it's like yeah, exactly. Uh, yeah, we they have, have been well, they've had thousands of years to you know develop these things. Exactly. That's like I just learned that there is an uh, Irish Gaelic term uh, that it's one word and it means when people drop by your house when you're eating dinner to get a free meal. <laughs> There's actually a Gaelic <laughs> term for it. so that must have been happening on a regular basis. Uh, we have been speaking with Thomas Frank. He is author of Rendezvous with Oblivion Reports from a Sinking Society. Tom is a former columnist, Wall Street Journal, Harper's. He's founding editor of The Baffler, writes regularly for The Guardian. Our interview with Tom from 10 years ago when his book, uh, The Wrecking Crew, had just been released is featured right now in our Patreon podcast this week. You can find out more about Tom at tcfrank.com. You can follow him on Twitter at thomasfrank underscore one last question. And you know, as always, it's the question from hell. The question we hate to ask. I know the, the answer is TSOL. <laughs> Shut up. Ah, the TSOL reference. We were betting if that was going to come back in or not. I've been, listen- I've been listening to them again. Uh, <laughs> uh, the Sons of Liberty. And they were, weren't they? Uh, so you write that the essays in your book are matters of grave impact, but you point out that you describe them with a certain amount of levity. I do that because that's the only way to confront the issues of our time without sinking into de- debilitating gloom. Then you quote H.L. Mencken writing, We live in a land of abounding quackeries, and if we do not learn how to laugh, we succumb to this melancholy disease which afflicts the race of viewers with alarm. But can laughing at power be a way to not only speak truth to power, but challenge it. Because over the years, I have had quite a few people tell me that the serious graveness of the topics we discuss should be handled as serious and grave as those matters are, and that laughing at them is not the appropriate response. And I really enjoy laughing at them. Uh, The answer is yes, Chuck. That's it? (laughs) I got you that time. God damn (laughs) Well, all right. Of course, you have to laugh at them. You don't want to go crazy, and and, and it's also, especially for someone like me, I'm not just writing for you know readers right now. You know, uh, I'm writing for people a hundred years from now who are going to want to look back at this stuff. If you don't, you know, if you don't, if you can't take a step back and see the absurdity of the situation that we're in. And see the sort of the the the, the humorous potential in it. Um, you know, no one is going to be interested in your. You know, look, I, I have plenty of journalist friends who 
constantly ring the alarm bell, constantly. This is all they do. Uh, every day is a three-alarm fire, especially now with, you know, with Trump in the, in, the, in the White House. Every day is a three-alarm fire. It's like you just get, uh, it, it, uh, you know, there's emergency fatigue, or what would I put, alarm fatigue, you know? <laughs> just, you're just sick of it after a while. You've got to find some other way, some way that is, that is enjoyable. You, you know, you have to deliver some kind of pleasure to the reader, um, you know, in addition to analysis. Well, Tom, on that note, why don't you go listen to some TSOL? <laughs> yeah. It's always great. In a world of my own creation. <laughs> it's always great to talk to you, sir, and you know I'm going to be bugging you in the future. Uh, anytime. You got it. All right. Take care, Tom. All right. We'll see you. This is hell where we put people before profits, which turns out to be a horrible business model. Some of the biggest U.S. corporations are using wage theft as a business model, boosting their profits and CEO salaries by stealing pay from their workers. We'll find out who is doing it, how much how much they're doing it, why it's happening, and what can be done about it when we talk to Good Jobs First Research Director Philip Matera, the lead author of the report Grand Theft Paycheck, the large corporations shortchanging their workers. You can now become a supporter of This Is Hell via Patreon. If you become a regular Patreon supporter, not only will we show our appreciation by sending you some This Is Hell subvertising stickers, but you'll also get some uh, access to special perks, including every week getting a classic interview from our back catalog of 20-plus years of on-air conversation selected by me with a new up-to-date introduction on why I selected that interview for our Patreon supporters. And in the future, you'll get... Additional bonus gifts at thisishell.com when you click on support on this week's Patreon podcast that you can hear right now by signing up to Patreon. We revealed the reading material in the This Is Hell office bathroom. Go ahead. Guess what Arkansas newspaper it is. I'll wait. Wrong. We also played our 2008 interview with Thomas Frank, who we just talked to, about his then-just-published book, The Wrecking Crew, How Conservatives Ruined Government, Enriched Themselves, and Beggared the Nation. The interview takes place in October of 2008, a month after the financial crisis that led to the Great Recession and a month before the election of Barack Obama as president. So listen and hear all the amazingly spot-on predictions Tom makes. He also relates a dream he had the night before about a 1970s punk band, which you might be able to guess right now. Wow. Wrong. Again. Jeez, you really are not good at this, are you? But the only way you can hear that interview, find out which Arkansas band is in the This Is Hell uh, paper is in the This Is Hell bathroom and what 1970s punk band Tom Frank dreamed about 10 years ago is by becoming a Patreon subscriber of This Is Hell right now. Alex, did you share anything on Patreon this week? Alex? Oh, sorry, uh, not yet, but I have actually the interview with uh, George Lakoff yeah. that you said was boring, but I haven't looked to see if it's boring or not, so maybe it's not. Uh, I'm sharing that on Monday morning. So that is a bonus, bonus podcast. So that goes out to anyone who supports the show at any level. Uh, so if you don't have $4 a month, no big deal. You can uh, still get every other week a uh podcast we want to thank those who have already signed up as patreon supporters because with your help we'll finally get our studio up and running as well as our rebuild our 21 plus year archive of shows thereby allowing us to give you more this is hell throughout the week and we're continuing to build our new studios thanks to you and thanks to my girly who is at this very moment painting the interview booth so we are definitely on schedule to have the studios working and open to the public during our third annual 20th anniversary party happening this summer on saturday july 21st hey we're already in summer happening on saturday 
Saturday, July 21st. There will be food, music, art, and prizes as well. We will be showing off some uh, new This Is Hell swag, too, with our new logo. And that will be taking place at Carrie's Lounge, 2251 West Devon, where they are celebrating today the 46th anniversary of that bar, starting at 3 p.m. with a closing of the art show upstairs. Thanks this week goes to our newest Patreon patron, Pam W., and that's it. What I got to do, beg, please show your support for Truly Independent Radio. This is the only way we can survive. Do you like our interview just now with Thomas Frank? Then sign up as a Patreon subscriber and you can get our interview with Tom from 10 years ago and enjoy some more Frank discussion. <laughs> and you can join Pam W. and around another 250 people in supporting This Is Hell by becoming a Patreon subscriber by going to thisishell.com and clicking on support. We really need your support. Now the construction, maintenance, phone, and internet bills are starting to pile up. So sign up as a supporter of This Is Hell on Patreon now and on next week's Patreon podcast. Now we're going to give you the George Lakoff one for Monday, but with the Bible making it into the news regarding kids being taken away from their families at the U.S.-Mexico border, we'll go back to December 2nd, 2006 in our interview with Jeff Charlotte, who had just posted that month's cover story in Harper's Through a Glass Darkly, how the Christian right is reimagining U.S. history, and we'll go back and see how that reimagination is actually taking place today, a dozen years later. Thanks to everyone who supported This Is Hell this week and in the coming days, weeks, months, and years. Your support will be needed more than ever as dissent continues to be shunned by the establishment corporate mainstream media. Okay, let's read your answers to this week's question from Hell, which is, what's it gonna say on America's tombstone? What's it gonna say on America's Tombstone. All replies read not right now. Our favorite one's a copy of the book we just featured here on This Is Hell, Thomas Frank's Rendezvous with uh, Oblivion, Reports from a Sinking Society. Again, the question from Hell is, what's it going to say on America's Tombstone? Leave your response now at our Facebook page, facebook.com slash thisishellradio. Alex, you have all the answers to this week's question from Hell. What's it going to say on America's Tombstone? Karen R. says they were always kind of an a-hole. <laughs> Joe B. says, here lies Andy, pepperoni and cheese. Do you remember that, Chuck? No. Okay. Uh, look it up. Uh, Joshua L. says, something America said while flexing and looking in the mirror. <laughs> Christopher W. says, womp womp. <laughs> uh, Miles A. says, your ad here. <laughs> What's it going to say on America's tombstone? Aaron B. says, how exceptional do you feel now, MFR? <laughs> Love the rest of the world. <laughs> Scott P. says, worst empire ever. <laughs> Darcy P. says, hashtag, all lives matter. Chris L. says, here lies the USA, home of the Whopper. Jonathan T. says, Sharky 2020. <laughs> Billy D. says, a failed experiment. Daniel W. says, the cradle of democracy and the deathbed of capitalism. That's pretty optimistic. That's nice. What's it going to say on America's tombstone? Paul G.C. or G.K. says, I told you I was sick. Scott S.J. says, please piss here. Bradley R. says, Afghanistan 3, Visitors 0. <laughs> Very good. Bradley oh, who? Uh, that was Bradley R. Okay. Sebastian M. says, womp womp. Jeez. Howard F. says, we came, we saw, we died. Shane M. says, you'll miss me when I'm gone. <laughs> I don't think so. Alexandra C. says, Na 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 na. Oh hey God. hey. Oh good lord. Goodbye. Oh jeez. What's it gonna say on America's tombstone? Alexandra H says, "Mission accomplished." <laughs> Rich H says, "See, I told you I was sick." 
Some good ones are classics for a reason, I guess. Lawrence C. says, In God We Thrust. Uh, Andrew W. sent us a link to a Find a Grave website that actually was Edward Barnard Schnabelt's grave that says uh, his dates of life and death, and then it says murdered by capitalism. This guy died in 1813, so he was uh, ahead of his time. Uh, Michael C. says... After me comes the flood. Lucy W. says, Oh, thank God, it's finally over. <laughs> Chris H. says, You're free to go now. What's it going to say on America's tombstone? Sabas W. says, Passerby, let ye beware, as you are now, so once was I. Passerby, remember me. <laughs> Joshua L. says, Russia took the long game and won. Richard M. says, the United States, 1776 to 2045, Republic, Empire, disappointment to all who knew her. <laughs> Maker K., I'm optimistic to give us until 2045, <laughs> to be honest with you. Maker K. said, RIP USA, and may the earth breathe a sigh of relief. Walter B. says, still today is going to be another working day, and I'm trying to get some rest. Is this a song lyric, maybe? Mm. Uh, Gary B. says, America, slavery and genocide masqueraded as liberty as long as the people slept. Mike A. says, Beloved father of Freedom Fries and the Lazy Boy Chair with built-in cooler. <laughs> What's it going to say on America's Tombstone? Jessica B. says, I really don't care, do you? <laughs> it's a Melania Trump thing. Uh, Dan N. says, Manifest Destiny. Peter K. says, Grand reopening September 31st, Trump Properties. <laughs> What's it going to say on America's Tombstone? David G. also said, I don't really care, do you? Is this, are you familiar with this? Yes. Well, yeah, okay. Yeah. Uh, uh, I'm not sure how. If you're not, I'm, I'm not surprised. sure how much you're following a, uh, yeah. the first lady's uh, coat choice. Mm. Adam D says, "Exporter of fascism, haver of guns." <laughs> Jeez. Uh, Kim F says, "She was so young, never had a chance to get over her youthful distrustful arrogance <laughs> and grow into the country her idealized self aspired to become." So it's going to be a huge tombstone, apparently. Yeah. Uh, Micah D says, "Mika, Micah, Mika. Mika, Mika D says, rest in Kofifi." <laughs> Gorilla G says no dancing what's it going to say on America's tombstone Michael G says I was just becoming fluent in Russian and then posted something in Russian which actually I looked up last night so I wouldn't do this again online but I'm doing it again online and it I'm means translating let's see it means obey obey hmm. Adam C says here lies America new name Bank of America <laughs> What's it going to say on America's tombstone? Matt P. says, This was America. Government was slipping up. Police was tripping up. Commies came whipping up. This was America. You know, what, what, is that, what is that song? Uh, Donald Glover. Uh, this is America. Oh, okay. Uh, Leo O.C. Do you know said, he is, he's not the son of Danny Glover? Okay, well. <laughs> Just go thanks, ahead. Thanks, Chuck. Thanks for that. Leo O.C. says, Literally the worst. Aaron D says, R.A.P. USA. She died with her overlong tie on after succumbing to bicameral neglect. <laughs> Angela E says, cause of death, Trumpster fire. Warren L says, under new management. <laughs> Anthony good. S says, some assembly required. Fergus F, and I actually have a message from Fergus if I got to send to you. Uh, Fergus, I think, not Fergus, says, Fergus. Uh, w- well, he wrote about that. Uh, he wrote, thanks, Obama. Dennis H. says, good riddance. Tamara H. says, land of the stupid. They never saw it coming. Stephanie B. says, tombstone must be shaped like a toilet. If you sprinkle when you tinkle, 
please be neat and wipe the seat. <laughs> Brian H. says, leave it to a lefty to ruin a good thing. And then someone wrote, you're on the wrong page, buddy. And then Brian H. said, I think we all gain by understanding how others view the world. This is hell tends to have informative discussion without too much name calling. It's hard to find political talk that's anything more than bashing the other side. Thank you, Brian H. And uh, like I said, I stopped paying attention. Once I realized it doesn't matter what we think about things, I stopped policing Facebook comments. Yeah. So go yeah. wild, everyone. Yeah. Penny's K says, going to meet my Magar, 1776 to 2020. Chris S. says, oops. John M. says, Ray Kroc, October 5th, 1902, January 14th, 1984. Chandler H. says, my name is Donald Trump, president of presidents. Look upon my works, ye mighty and despair. What's it going to say on America's tombstone? Just a few more responses. Andrea G. says, America, lived by the bullet, died by the bullet. You reap what you sow. Amen. <laughs> Daniel D. says, you're at here. Thomas K. says, be best, surrounded by bullet holes. <laughs> Thomas K. Yes. Beth M says, here lies America. There were very fine people on both sides. <laughs> That's very good. Uh, Zev K says, Murica, a great idea, poorly executed by a bunch of selfish pricks. Ladio says, E pluribus dustbin. Mark R says, live free or die. Die. Andrew T says, time's up. <laughs> Jeffy, our own Jeffy D says, my name is Ozymandias, king of kings. Look on my works, ye <laughs> mighty and despair. Michael S. says, don't blame me. I voted for Kodos. <laughs> KLF says, no tombstone. America will have the peace of unburied death. Mark R. says, sent me the link to a uh, site, USA is not America, which warns that USA is not America. America is the name of the whole continent. But you were wrong. Yeah. Uh, you were wrong, Mark, because I was talking about the whole continent. Everyone else is wrong. Oh, I was right the whole time. Look at you. Uh, so you were wrong about us. I was going to make that comment earlier. Sybil S. says, best of all. And who, uh, best of all, and who alive could say otherwise? And then just a couple Twitter responses. Uh, past guest from last week, Nick uh, Davis says, these violent delights have violent ends and in their triumph die like fire and powder. Rock Taster says, we came, we saw, we died. Ha ha ha. Nos Refuge 2033 says, no regrets. F Adam 92, don't know what Adam did to you, said, this tombstone is sponsored by Amazon. DARPA slut. <laughs> thought you'd appreciate DARPA slut. Said, let us hope that America may finally understand peace. At least we uh, know what DARPA's been up to. And finally, two more. Joel E. says, on the front side, America made great again. On the back side, bottom right corner, Hesho in China. <laughs> uh, finally, uh, Eric V. says, America is the only country that went from barbarism to decadence without civilization in between. <laughs> Oscar Wilde quote. And that's it. My response to the question from hell, what's it going to say on America's tombstone? I think it's going to be the same thing it says on the tombstone at Bohemian National Cemetery for the late Bohemian mayor of Chicago, the corrupt Anton Cermak, which reads, I'm glad it was me and it wasn't you, which he supposedly said as he was dying from an assassin's bullet that just missed President Franklin Delano Roosevelt. Or did it just miss FDR? Some say it was actually intended for Cermak. And that sum is me. And today, across the city, Chicagoans buy their groceries at Cermak Produce, which is oddly organized by nationality of food. Guess what aisle canned tomatoes is in? Man, you suck. It's in the Italian section. That makes this week's winner. Let's see. I really like Karen's. They were always a-holes. Uh, Alex's uh, Mission Accomplished. Alan's new name, Bank of America. Thomas K's Be Best. But Bradley R., you are the winner. Afghanistan 3, 
US Zero, so you will be getting a copy of Thomas Frank's book, Rendezvous with Oblivion, Reports from a Sinking Society. All you have to do is just, uh, we'll be posting in the comments for your reply that you are the winner, and all you have to do is just send us a message to facebook.com slash thisishellradio with your mailing address, and we will send that to you. This is Hell Office Hours happen this and every Wednesday from 6 p.m. to 9 p.m. at Carrie's Lounge, 2251 West Avon, the bar downstairs from the This Is Hell Office office and hopefully soon our studio as well drop by the bar any wednesday evening hang out and chat me up and i'll give you a free book related to the show just for dropping by that is if i remember and i haven't been remembering lately and the books are starting to pile up in my office actually this past week i i actually did remember so come on in say hello watch me drink get a free book and some this is hell subvertising stickers so you can subvert public advertising with the words this is hell this is hell office hours every wednesday evening 6 p.m. to 9 p.m. at Carrie's Lounge, 2251 West Avon. I want to thank the people who did drop by this past Wednesday. Brian, the other Brian that Tom came with, my girly Laura, producer Alex, Wally, Dave, Eric, Nate, Richard, Lucy, and Tim, Amy, and Becky joined us for the first time. And apparently their entire family listens to This Is Hell, which both makes me very proud and oddly frightened. But we hope to see all of them at the upcoming This Is Hell party. By the way, if you have any suggestions for bands, artists, or would like to donate prizes for our Saturday, July 21st listener appreciation and This Is Hell anniversary party, tell me during office hours on Wednesdays or email me at chuck at thisishell.com and you can chat me up and get free books and stickers. Hopefully at This Is Hell office hours every Wednesday, 6 p.m. to 9 p.m. at Carrie's Lounge, 2251 West Devon. But wait, there's more. I will be at Carrie's Lounge today from 3 p.m. till I don't know when. 2251 West Devon, all day and night. I'll be there, hopefully. And tonight, as uh, Carrie's Lounge celebrates their 46th anniversary with music, food, and the closing of the current art show, that is something you've got to see, especially if you like... Sculptures made of Soviet dress patterns and a variety of depictions of vaginas. So drop by anytime between 3 p.m. this afternoon and 3 a.m. tomorrow morning. Actually, if you show up right at 3 a.m., that's probably not a good idea So because that, that's when Carrie's closes. But join me today and into the night at Carrie's Lounge for their 46th anniversary party at 2251 West Devon. Coming up on this week's This Is Hell, some of the biggest corporations in the U.S. have stolen billions of dollars from their workers as part of their business model. And during a moment of truth, Jeff Dorchin presents Kanye's Choice Part 3, The Dumbening and The Smarting. All that plus, we've got a whole bunch of people we want to thank for supporting This Is Hell and sharing the show online. Maybe we'll get to twist off knowledge. Maybe we'll get back into listener feedback or some of the people who rated us with five-star ratings on Facebook. I don't know. Live from the planet where we know the price of everything and the value of nothing. This is hell. The biggest, most profitable corporations with the highest paid CEOs are stealing money from the workers as part of their business model. Here to reveal to us just how bad corporate wage theft is, why it's happening, and what we can do about it Good Jobs First Research Director Philip Matera is the lead author of the report, Grand Theft Paycheck, The Large Corporations Shortchanging Their Workers. Welcome to This Is Hell, Philip. 
Thank you. Happy to be with you. You can follow Philip on Twitter at Dirt Diggers. You can find out more about Good Jobs First at goodjobsfirst.org. And you can also read all of Philip's writing at dirtdiggersdigest.org. The report states... Many of the largest companies operating in the United States have fattened their profits by forcing employees to work off the clock or depriving them of required overtime pay. How common of a practice is this? Is is this just a few bad apples, or is it more prevalent, even systemic, than just a few bad apples? Well, when I started out doing this research, I thought it was fairly limited I mean, many people probably heard about controversies involving Walmart um, and the way it's engaged in in these kinds of uh, insidious practices. And people probably heard of it in relation to, um, you know, some fast food operators and, of course, you know, old-fashioned sweatshops, uh, things of that sort. So uh, I never expected, however, that we would find that these kinds of practices are pretty much pervasive um, kind of in corporate America, including in a lot of uh, industries with a lot of companies you wouldn't think of as uh, doing this kind of thing. For example, uh, the big banks. Now, of course, the big banks (laughs) do lots of bad things, but we don't think of them as um, the kinds of employers that are chiseling their employees. But it turns out that you know, they're very high on the list. Bank of America, Wells Fargo, J.P. Morgan Chase, et cetera, you know, have been uh, involved in these wage theft cases time and time again and have paid out very large sums of money to settle these matters. How does the framing of the wage theft story as one of only affecting people at the lower end of the wage scale How does that affect the way that we understand the story of wage theft? Well, I I think we didn't realize that this kind of thing is going on in many kinds of occupations, and not only the people at the very bottom. You know, we found cases involving, you know, fairly high-paid jobs, you know, even uh, stockbrokers and financial advisors, um, pharmaceutical sales representatives. It you know it seems like you know these companies have been squeezing uh, their workforces kind of from top to bottom. The report gives a list of the ways in which wages can be stolen, including off-the-clock work, overtime violations, misclassification, which is the improper designation of certain workers as exempt from overtime pay, for example, by wrongly labeling them as managers, or as independent contractors not subject to wage and hour requirements, minimum wage violations, meal or rest break violations, uncompensated clothing purchase requirements, tip violations, and other wage and hour violations, including issues that are often enforced by state agencies, including late payment of wages or failure to pay at all. How aware do you think the average worker is of the ways in which their wages may be stolen? Well, I think um, many people who are victims of this are all too well aware of it because they see it in their paycheck. You know, They see that um, they're not getting paid for all the hours that they were supposed to, that they're not getting time and a half, uh, you know, for for overtime, you know, and and things of that sort. There probably are also people who don't realize, for example, that they should be getting overtime pay, but that they've been incorrectly 
designated as exempt from overtime. This is the misclassification problem that you mentioned. So this happens a lot, for example, in in uh, stores. People are given a title like assistant store manager, which doesn't really mean much of anything. Uh, and they're pretty much doing the same work they were doing before. But now the management says, well, you know, with this promotion, you know, you're no longer eligible for overtime pay. And often that's untrue. They still are eligible, but the employer, you know, just tells them that they um, they no longer qualify for that, and people may not realize it until until later. And uh, in some cases, groups of people get together and they file lawsuits, and they can get some justice. To what degree do you think wages are being stolen? Maybe more so today from workers because workers feel their job is more precarious than in the past, and any complaint they make will lead either to the end of their jobs or compensation that does not come close to the amount of money their job at that employer could have earned, So, or maybe even be labeled as a troublemaker and thus can't get a job. To what degree do you think today's work climate leads to workers possibly not realizing or even complaining about wage theft? Well, I think, you know, workers, you know, despite the fact that the, the labor market is depicted as, you know, so vibrant and, and official unemployment being so low, the power of, of workers, you know, in the in the workplace is probably lower than it's ever been, um, or at least in modern times. Uh, you know, part of it, of course, is with the decline of unions, you know, that people don't have a kind of a collective voice in the workplace. They're kind of on their own. Um, workers are increasingly made to, you know, kind of sign away uh, certain rights, and they're just not aware of what their, um, you know, what the law is. Um, and you know, and I think people still are worried about losing their jobs because although it seems like there are a lot of job openings, most of those are not very good jobs. So if you have a job that you think is, you know, okay, you might be worried that if you lose it, you know, the thing you get next is going to be even worse. Could a working class campaign against wage theft be something that the middle class and above could also benefit from? Because I was wondering if it can help all workers, can it also lead to a collective mass worker movement? Yeah, because, you know, a lot of these um, people who were affected by, you know, this practice, you know, are not your traditional blue-collar people. A lot of them are, are white-collar, even kind of quasi-professionals. And, you know, when it comes down to it, they have a lot more in common with, you know, lower-level people, if you want to call it that, or, you know, traditional blue-collar people than they have, you know, with the managers above them. And if they would start to think in those terms and, you know, figure out ways to, you know, operate collectively, whether it's through unions or other kinds of worker organizations, they might be able to make things better for everyone in the workplace. Do you think that can rejuvenate uh, labor organizing and unionism in the United States? Well, I certainly hope so. And there are attempts going on to do that. And, you know, there's a lot of frustration with traditional labor law. Um, You know, the um, National Labor Relations Act framework for forming unions, and a lot of people are experimenting with uh, different approaches uh, to, um, you know, asserting 
more rights in the workplace. And it'll be interesting to see how this turns out. You're quoted in the press release for this uh, report saying, our findings make it clear that wage theft goes far beyond sweatshops, fast food outlets, and retailers, as you were mentioning earlier. It is built into the business model of a substantial portion of corporate America. What do you mean by wage theft being built into the business model of corporate America? Well, this was a conclusion that I reached, you know, after finding that these uh, cases were so common. And not only do they involve, you know, a wide variety of companies, but in many cases, you know, large companies are embroiled in these things time and time again. You know, it's not as if it was just like a one-time thing or it was an accident or we didn't know. And, um, you know, once it was brought to their attention, they cleaned up their act. You know, we've got some companies with, you know, multiple, uh, you know, and numerous uh, cases that have happened time and time again. So it, it seems like they will do everything in their power to avoid, uh, you know, ending these practices completely. Because it's it, and the conclusion is it must be part of their business model. They must depend on the ability to deprive workers of all the pay that they're entitled to. And apparently they've decided that the penalties that they pay when they get caught, whether it's in one of these collective action lawsuits or in a government enforcement action, are worth it. That they don't begin to make up for the amount that they've actually been stealing. So if this is part of their business model, how much do you think corporate profits or how much impact do you think uh, is, wage theft is having on corporate profits? And therefore, you know, the stock market, Dow Jones, are they currently bolstered by corporate wage theft? If we, if we didn't have corporate wage theft, would the stock market not be doing as well as it is? Well, I mean, I think the, the, the immediate stock market um, – boom, you know, is is mostly related to the ridiculous tax cuts that were given to corporate America by Congress. Uh, You know, and these wage theft things have been going on, you know, for quite a while. You know, our research goes back to 2000. And that's um, that's not because wage theft started in 2000, but that's when these lawsuits, these collective action lawsuits began, began to become more common. So that was a, a good starting point for the research. Um, look, if if companies suddenly had to really pay workers everything they were entitled to, then corporate profits would indeed sink in many cases, and that could ultimately have an effect on the stock market. For all the business sections that we have out there and all the newspapers, the business channels on TV, the business websites, why couldn't they have come to this same conclusion? Why didn't they investigate wage theft, corporate wage theft, but you and your organization, as well as your partners in this, uh, that you actually found this. What explains to you why the news media, the business news media, didn't see this corporate wage theft happening? Well, we didn't discover, you know, wage theft. <laughs> we can't take credit for that. But I've, the only yeah. people I've talked to about wage theft, it's always about people who are on the lower end of the scale. It's never about the the mega corporations who are doing right. it. Right. So what I think the problem is that. Um, most of these cases that we found were lawsuits that were filed either in federal or state court. 
and were uh, resolved without a lot of uh, publicity. You know, they might have gotten a little bit of coverage, but it's it's difficult to track these cases down. You know, I, you know, I had to spend months and months going through court records to find the cases, find um, the ultimate resolution, the settlement amounts, and so forth, and piece it together, and then link the, the companies that are named in the suits, because those are often subsidiaries of the larger uh, corporations, and then link those company names to the parent companies and piece it all together. So it was it was a fair amount of work to um, to do this, and you know most journalists don't have the the luxury of you know of uh, of time to to do that kind of research. Right, because there has been an undermining of investigative journalism since the collapse of journalism in the last couple of decades. So how much coverage did your report garner in the mainstream uh, corporate media? Because not only do I never see any reports of corporate wage theft or wage theft in general in the media, I've never even heard the term wage theft ever used in the media. So how much yeah. did uh, how much coverage did your report get? Well, it got a little bit. We actually got an article in the Wall Street Journal which was interesting to see um, see that they thought this was um, newsworthy. Was that more a how-to article about wage theft? <laughs> maybe. <laughs> you know, maybe the advice to companies, hey, get on this <laughs> bandwagon. Um, so, so we got that. Um, you know, we got um, articles in some of the, you know, regional newspapers, you know, where there was kind of a geographical hook you know, either because one of the companies high on the list is headquartered in a particular area, or in the case of California, we got a bunch of coverage in California because California has more of these lawsuits than any other state by far. And that's not because there's more wage theft in California, but California has a more, um, has a, a, a state labor code that goes beyond the federal rules. You know, the Fair Labor Standards Act at the federal level establishes the main requirements on things like overtime pay. California has a labor code that also requires things like meal and rest breaks. And many of these uh, lawsuits were brought um, using those, those California rules as, the, as their basis. And even sometimes um, if they ended up in federal court, they were still able to cite the California uh, rules. So a number of the papers in um, California paid attention to the report because of that uh, angle. And I want to get back to what's happening in California a little bit and how we can address wage theft. But the report states... Although there are fluctuations from year to year, the lawsuit penalty total reached a high of $1.3 billion in 2016. Italian 2017 was $732 million, the fourth largest yearly total. How long has this corporate wage theft been taking place? Is this a new thing or to this degree a new thing? Has this been going on for as long as there have been corporations or has something changed? Well, I think it became uh, more more common. Probably, it started to emerge. I think as a real phenomenon in probably the 1980s and 90s, as particularly U.S. corporations were, you know, kind of squeezing their workers um, because of increased, you know, international competition. And um, you know, I, I think initially 
a lot of um, a lot of people were didn't kind of perceive that this this was happening. It was it was in, only in the late 1990s that um, some unions, particularly the United Food and Commercial Workers, began to pay attention to this, and they did two things. One is that they pressed the Federal Wage and Hour Division, which is part of the Labor Department, to kind of get tougher about uh, these practices. And then they thought, you know, hey, let's also look into bringing lawsuits. Um, And they initiated some of the original litigation. These are things known as collective action suits, which are a variation of class action suits. So they started bringing these cases. And then as these cases succeeded, a lot of the plaintiff's lawyers, you know, the kinds of people who would bring class action suits on other issues, began to get into the act. And um, in the early 2000s, we started to see more and more of these lawsuits um, filed, particularly against companies like Walmart. And, uh, you know, at a certain point, you know, in early in that decade, Walmart had hundreds of these uh, lawsuits pending against it. It ended up, you know, spending a vast amount of money to settle them. Uh, you know, overall, it's paid out more than a billion dollars in in settlements uh, in these kinds of cases. But then other companies began to you know get sued as well, and that's um, you know the 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 spotlight was no longer on this issue. And a lot of these cases, as I mentioned before, kind of got settled quietly, and, um, and nobody was piecing it all together. Let's get to that quiet settlement and some of the companies and corporations that are involved. You mentioned Walmart already, but the, pre- uh, the press release states, among the dozen most penalized corporations, Walmart, with $1.4 billion in total wage theft settlements and fines, is the only retailer. Second is FedEx with $502 million. Half of the top dozen are banks and insurance companies, including Bank of America at $381 million, Wells Fargo at $205 million, J.P. Morgan Chase at $160 million, and State Farm Insurance at $140 million. To what degree were any of these instances of wage theft by some of the biggest corporations in the U.S. reported on at the time that the news broke on these settlements? Because as you were just saying, they work really hard to keep these settlements uh, out of the eye of the public. Yeah, I mean, I'm not saying that these settlements were secret, although in a minute I'll get to another, there's another category of of settlements that actually are secret. But for the most part, these were, um, you know, these were were reported. I mean, a lot of, a lot of, in a lot of um, instances, I found out about these cases in the legal, the specialized legal press. You know, there are, um, you know, publications that are aimed at lawyers because lawyers, want to know about settlements um, because it gives them an idea of how much they might get in their own cases. So that's one place where these cases often got settled. Or if they were mentioned in um, the business press, you know, they were like maybe tiny articles, you know, stuck in the back of the newspaper. Um, another another way in which um, we gathered information was through companies' um, filings with the Securities and Exchange Commission. So in their SEC filings, they're supposed to report on major legal proceedings. And what we found is that sometimes they do, sometimes they don't. But in, you know, in some cases, companies were reporting 
uh, these settlements in those filings, and we um, we got information from them as well. But in other cases, companies were not reporting these settlements, and the SEC is not very strict about enforcing these disclosure rules. So, you're but as d- I mentioned, go ahead. As I mentioned before, there, what we also found is that in some cases, these companies petitioned the courts to keep the terms of the settlement secret. Uh, what they do is they claim that the, uh, the case, that the settlement involves proprietary business information, and that um, you know, if they reveal the settlement, it's you know, kind of giving away something to their competitors. And most of the time, they don't get away with that. But in some cases, they um, they do, and you know we we found um, you know more than a hundred of these uh, settlements where they were filed under seal. So we know that the case happened. We know that there was a settlement, but the uh, the terms of the settlement, including the dollar amounts, are are not public information. Wow. That's just what you need in a democracy. Uh, So uh, you quote a, well, first of all, the report states that among the top 25 most penalized companies for wage theft are companies in sectors not typically associated with wage theft. And you were mentioning this earlier, including telecommunications, AT&T, information technology, Microsoft and Oracle, pharmaceuticals, Novartis, and investment services, Morgan Stanley and UBS. To what extent then is the so-called new economy already embracing wage theft? Well, I think there's a lot of it, and the, the new economy is is not necessarily good news for workers. Um, you know, one of the companies that doesn't feature prominently in our report is Amazon, and that's not because they're a good employer. It's um, and there have been accusations of wage theft in their you know distribution centers, for example. But what they do, and this is another kind of trick <laughs> that these employers use, is that they don't keep people on their own payrolls. They use temp agencies, employee leasing companies, and other intermediaries so that if there's a problem, workers often have, they can't sue Amazon. They have to sue these other companies. And so Amazon is not named in the cases. So it looks like, you know, from a distance that Amazon, you know, is not a bad employer, but all the anecdotal evidence suggests uh, that they are. While you're uh, responding to that, I was thinking about a past interview that we recently did about worker arbitration agreements. How much do worker arbitration agreements get become an obstacle uh, and create a way that you can have uh, wage theft? Well, they're a much bigger obstacle now because the Supreme Court recently ruled in this uh, case uh, called Epic Systems that employers can uh, require workers to sign these mandatory arbitration agreements that you know could end up making these collective action lawsuits a thing of the past, and it's a it's a it's a real problem. I mean, there there are some ways in which the cases can can continue. For example, in California, you know, using those state rules, they can still. Uh, Workers can still bring cases, but in the rest of the country, 
these cases uh, just may not be possible soon. You quote Killian Collin, who worked for Wells Fargo between 2013 and 2016 in Southern California, saying, at Wells Fargo, aggressive sales quotas based on exploiting vulnerable customers forced me into 12-hour shifts with no breaks and no food allowed and threats to withhold my paycheck if I didn't sign off on working extra hours for free. Now, the the Wells Fargo story and how they were opening bank accounts without the knowledge of account holders was all over the news. Why was the wage theft aspect of the story ignored? How important do you think wage theft is in understanding the Wells Fargo story? Because I'm trying to figure out what we miss in understanding the story. It's Because it just seems to me that it's easier to blame a few rotten apples at the bottom of Wells Fargo's packing order when we don't report on the wage theft that occurred. And thus, we miss the real story that it was an institutional problem starting at the very top and working its way down instead of a problem of people at the bottom. So is that why wage theft was missing from the media's coverage of the Wells Fargo story? because they were trying to blame the people at the bottom instead of the people at the top? Well, I think that the reason may have been that uh, reporters tend to focus more on uh, mistreatment of consumers than they do mistreatment of workers. And maybe that's because they figure that you know more of their readers are, are consumers or whatever the reason is. But in the Wells Fargo case, you know, it showed how the abuse of workers and the abuse of customers went hand in hand. You know, it was those two things were together part of the warped corporate culture at, uh, at Wells Fargo. And that, um, you know, they were really were inseparable. You know, the company was so obsessed at, at creating these bogus, um, you know, profits that they um, they pushed workers beyond the point of um, endurance to um, you know to create these phony accounts and, and generate you know the illicit revenue. The press release to your report states more than 100 companies have paid penalties in three or more collective action lawsuits. Bank of America and its subsidiaries did so more than two dozen times. Now, I don't have a Bank of America uh, America account. My money isn't, unfortunately, another horribly huge bank that you made your list, unfortunately. All that is about to change. I want to go to a community bank. But how far would taking money out of Bank of America accounts and moving it to, say, a community bank go in protesting Bank of America's seemingly consistent wage theft from their workers? Is your organization calling for a boycott of corporations who do participate in wage theft? Because I'm trying to figure out how much impact can consumer activism in purchase preferences have on wage theft? Well, Given how many companies you know we call out for wage theft, it would be really difficult to boycott all of them, you know, unless you just want to kind of withdraw from the the mainstream economy entirely. So we're we're not um, you know pushing the boycott uh, idea immediately. The um, you know, look if enough people do that, it you know it can have an impact. Um, but I. I, I I think in immediate terms, probably the more effective thing is to make sure that workers at the banks or any of these other companies have the the uh, the tools at their disposal to uh, kind of fight back against these practices. And if the collective action lawsuits are not 
you know, are not going to be possible anymore, then, you know, they'll have to, people have to look to other means, you know, you know, along with, along with that Supreme Court case, we have the problem that the Trump administration seems to be trying to weaken the wage and hour division. You know, they're pushing this idea of, of self audits, you know, it's basically saying to companies, you're on the honor system as to whether you're, um, you know, obeying the Fair Labor Standards Act and whether you're engaging in wage theft. Well, we know what that means. <laughs> it's basically giving them a green light, you know, to do more of this kind of thing. So for for the time being, we can't really turn to the, um, the wage and hour division to do much more. Uh, you know, there are some attempts at the state level, um, even at the local level, to um, to bring uh, more aggressive enforcement actions. In some cases, you know, local district attorneys are even talking about uh, bringing criminal actions. You know, because you know, usually this is treated as a, a civil matter, but um, some of them have made the case that you know this is actually you know wage theft is not you know just a metaphor <laughs> that this is literally a form of theft. And that um, employers should um, be subject to uh, criminal sanctions. Now that's still, you know, a very limited um, approach, but it it could very well grow if some of these other avenues are not open to workers. Well, how? Because you know, uh, uh, Donald Trump says that he is a pro-worker president. Now you're telling me that he's doing these things that will hurt worker pay. How successful do you think that even push going so far as pushing for uh, these seen uh, these kind of this kind of wage theft to be seen as a crime? How successful do you think that would be in either a Democratic Party platform or a Republican Party platform when it comes to getting people to vote for you? Well, first of all, I mean, Donald theft. Donald Trump is a Donald a theft. Worker. That was fantastic. Theft, yes. <laughs> Excuse me. Uh, Donald Trump is a is a pro worker um, president in a very limited sense. He's pro worker. If if your idea of bashing immigrants and engaging in a trade war is is pro worker, um, but if when it comes to the workers' relationship to his or her employer, he's done nothing to help workers kind of in the workplace. You know, he's done nothing to um, help workers in situations of wage theft. He's taken actions that are weakening labor unions. You know, he's taken actions that are weakening enforcement of occupational safety and health rules and discrimination rules, etc. So um, there's no, it's it's a very selective kind of uh, a pro-worker posture, which is really meant to foster, you know, a different, you know, um, nativist uh, agenda, not really a pro-worker agenda. So, um, so I mean, I don't expect, you know, anything from him or the or the Republicans on this. I mean, the the Democrats, you know, have been decent on this issue. The the Obama administration um, put someone at the head of the wage and hour division, David Weil, who's Who's got you know, you know, was a kind of renowned expert on this issue of um, wage theft and contingent labor, and you know took a very aggressive posture against uh, against employers. You know now all that seems to be getting reversed. 
Just a few more questions for you, Philip. Uh, you mentioned this in your report, but how does wage theft target minorities uh, more than non-minorities? Is there less of an impact on white men than any other demographic when it comes to wage theft? Well, it, it was a little it was a little tricky to um, to analyze this because we don't have good information about the demographics of the people involved in these. Um, in these cases, so what, you know, what we did was to kind of go go about it indirectly. So we looked at the the industries that have uh, where there have been the most wage theft penalties, and then looked at the demographic composition of the workforce in um, in those industries. One one thing we found was that um, a lot of these industries have uh, no large uh, female um, populations in them. That uh, you know, of the ten most penalized industries, um, all but two of them, you know, employ large numbers of women. You know, more than the average uh, the um, portion of of women in the workforce as a whole. So it, it you know, there's this indication that uh, that uh, women workers may suffer from wage theft. You know, somewhat more um, than men, and then we did the same thing. You know, looking at the um, the most penalized industries in terms of their percentage of of um, black and Latino workers, and um, in about half of the top ten industries, we found that the percentage of um, you know of those uh, groups of workers were greater than in the workforce as a whole. Again, suggesting that um, you know workers of color are somewhat more impacted by um, by wage theft, but but again, it's um, it's it's hardly only a problem for women or workers of color. You know the, the the fact that we found this kind of thing going on in such a wide variety of companies and industries and occupations uh, suggests that uh, it's affecting the whole workforce by and large. The press release states many companies accused of wage theft are highly profitable. CEOs at AT&T, Bank of America, J.P. Morgan Chase, and Walmart each receive annual compensation of more than $20 million. And the report itself adds when the realized gains from stock options and other stock awards are added in, total compensation can reach much higher. J.P. Morgan Chase's Jamie Dimon took in more than $152 million dollars in 2017. To what degree then are these companies stealing pay from workers at the lower end of the pay scale and giving that money to executives? Is Jamie Dimon getting rich off stealing his workers' pay? Well, you could look at it that way. I mean, it's, you know, it's not a, a direct thing. We're directly taking out of one pocket and putting it into another, but ultimately that's the, you know, that's the result. Uh, you know, what basically what we were trying to show is that, you know, this is not a case of Companies that are struggling to get by, you know, having to cut corners on pay in order to stay in business. These are companies that are highly profitable and that uh, compensate their chief executives lavishly so they could also afford to pay their workers properly. One last question for you, Philip. We have been speaking with Good Jobs First Research Director Philip Matera. He is the lead author of the report, Grand Theft Paycheck, The Large Corporations 
shortchanging their workers. You can find out more by going to goodjobsfirst.org. Our final question for all of our guests, Philip, is the question from hell, the question we hate to ask, you might hate to answer. Or in this case, I think it's going to fall in the final category, which is our audience is going to hate your response. Is wage theft bad for the overall economy and leading to greater inequality? Well, I think those are those are two different questions. Um, in a sense, when you talk about what's good for the economy, you, you really have to ask, you know, whose economy? You know, increasingly we've got, you know, two economies, you know, in this country, and that's just another way of of talking about inequality. You know, for the people at the top, you know, wage theft is is helping them a lot, right? It's either helping them directly if they um, you know, are in the companies that are engaging in this practice, so it's increasing profitability. It's you know having some effect on on stock prices. So for the people at the top, the wage theft is good for their economy. For people at the bottom, you know, it's it's disastrous. You know, because wage wage rates are bad, stagnant to begin with, and then when you add this kind of um, chiseling <laughs> on top of that, it, it it depresses living standards all the more. And greater inequality. Well, yeah, because the um, you know the people at the bottom uh, who are the biggest victims of wage theft, you know, are seeing their um, their income decline as a result of this, and the people at the top, you know, are seeing their incomes increase. And people should go to your other website, violationtracker.org, to see if their company is actually on there. We have been speaking with Good Jobs First Research Director, Philip Matera. He is the lead author of the report, Grand Theft Paycheck, the large corporations shortchanging their workers. Again, go to Good Jobs First at goodjobsfirst.org, or you can follow uh, Philip on Twitter at Dirt Diggers or find all of his writing at dirtdiggersdigest.org. Thank you so much for being on our show. Happy to do it. Live from lands stolen from the natives, this is hell in a few moments. During a singular moment of truth, Jeff presents Kanye's Choice Part 3, The Dumbening and the Smarting. All that plus, we've got a whole bunch of people we want to thank for supporting This Is Hell. Uh, we're not going to get to twist off knowledge, but we will tell you what's happening on upcoming episodes of This Is Hell. And depending on the length of Jeffy's moment of truth, uh, we'll maybe go back into the listener feedback. And some people had some comments about the show on Facebook. The best way for you to get the word out about This Is Hell is to share the entire show or individual interviews or correspondence reports. This Is Hell has a very limited promotional budget, so we want to thank all of our listeners who share the show online. Thanks this week goes out to the people who publicly shared the show or interviews or correspondence reports this week. Lots more shared it, but many choose to do so anonymously. And considering Facebook's sharing of data, that's probably a good idea. Thanks this week goes to Nick, Dan, Thomas, Frank. Not two people, Thomas and Frank. Thomas, Frank. Jeffrey, Julie, Jan, Tom, Shaw, Sean, Pete, Doug, Anarchimedia, Mika, Rich, Sebastian, Simon, Sean's Russia blog, and Gorilla Gramophonics. And that's only the people who publicly shared This Is Hell on Facebook. Thanks to all of you for sharing This Is Hell, however you share the show, whether it's through Twitter, Facebook, SoundCloud, whatever. If you want to hear your name read on air and simultaneously spread the good word about the evil content of This Is Hell, all you have to do is share This Is Hell. Coming up on this week's This Is Hell, during a singular moment of truth, Jeff presents Kanye's Choice Part 3, The Dumbening and the Smarting. Plus, we'll tell you what's happening on upcoming episodes of This Is Hell. And like I said, maybe get back into some Facebook comments and listener feedback.
Bringing you bong-hitting journalism since 1996, this is Hell. Alex, I know you have half on the line. Kanye's Choice Part 3. Sophie's Choice, Kanye's Choice, your choice. Welcome to the moment of truth, the thirst that is the drink. The Jews, my people, such a stiff-necked people. You want to own the Holocaust, I get it. You don't want to share the word concentration camp. Yeah, that makes sense. Those little children at the southern border aren't being forced to do labor, so we can't call them labor camps. They're not being exterminated or worked to death, so we can't call them extermination camps or death camps. We can call them internment camps because, like, they're in prison, but not concentration camps because that's our word, even though they're being concentrated into a camp. That's not good enough for you? You think they invented the concentration camp just for Jews in Europe in the 30s and 40s? I won't go into the historical error you're making. There's a Slate article for that. What I'm going to beat you up about is just don't be so morally superior. Don't hold your suffering over others. We're on the verge of losing the special victim status associated with the Shoah, and holding on to concentration camps doesn't really help. All over Europe and here in the U.S., new right-wing nationalist groups are firmly establishing themselves. It's not just anti-Semitism they're peddling either. It's anti-foreigner, whatever they decide a foreigner is. And I want them to know that If they're concentrating people in camps, or if they're beating people up, or making anti-foreigner laws aimed at strengthening the borders, whatever they want to call it, it does resemble the rise of fascism in Europe in the 20s and 30s of last century. This is what it looked like. They want to say, hey, look, this is a special problem. These Latins or Muslims or whatever. So a little nativist suspicion and anti-immigrant rhetoric here or there is okay. It's not a sign we're on the slippery slope toward Hitler, Franco, Vichy, or Mussolini. Let's at least rehabilitate love of country. Our country for us. America first. Is that so bad? At least we're not keeping people in concentration camps. B.S. It's the same old fascism they're constructing, and if you aren't behind calling them out for their attempts to put a white Christian dictatorship in place of our nominal democracy, take your silly asses home. Don't worry, they'll come for you later. Want to wait till you're packed into a cattle car to Wyoming to call them what they are? More fool you. And my black friends, is it really so important as we're heading down the street to beat up the KKK to stop the conversation and talk about the white privilege of those marching beside you? I believe it's necessary to remind everyone of the very special racist dependency the U.S. has and capitalism has had since the beginning on the owning of, domination over, freedom to murder, and dehumanization of black people. We must know this. It's important knowledge. We have to know all the details of capitalism's crimes if we're going to tear it apart and build a new thing that doesn't commit the same ones. But right now, we're swinging baseball bats. Can we just be one force as we wade into the ocean of creeps? And everyone, do not forget the singular structure of the Holocaust. It was the systematic dismantling of citizenship and status as human. Very instructive. Instructive how definitions transform the humanity of people. Yes, from the beginning, when black people were brought as slaves to labor in the Americas back in the 16th century, 
They were defined as less than human, and they're still defined that way in the U.S. today. How does such a thing start? Watch how quickly an otherwise stable society of citizens can choose one characteristic and define as subhuman any group bearing it. Watch the lead up to the Nuremberg Laws. And Jews, look at the black codes. Wonder how a cop gets away with an obvious murder right there before your eyes on video? Remember and listen. Remember and listen. We're all targets of the fascists. We teachers, we queers, we advocates of the poor, we whistleblowers, we women, we white Christians who resist. Shonda Rhimes is many things, a producer, a performer, and contingently a first-class citizen when she's in the right room. What would it take for her economic privileges to be stripped entirely from her when white male privilege officially becomes the only privilege? Will it be Whitelandia? Will it be Atwood's Gilead? Shonda knows the signs of current racism, but will she see the signs of a coming Kristallnacht? I assume she will. She's astute and aware. Let's all be that aware. So can we not with the hypotheticals? I know, that was just a hypothetical, but just bear with me. If he'd been white, he'd be alive today. Well, probably, but does that change anyone's mind? All a fascist has to say is, not my cousin, the Swede was tweaker, or just make up some lie. Or another hypothetical just as imaginary, if not as persuasive, to someone who already agrees with you. Last week, we talked about how pride and heroism were hallmarks of the ongoing black captivity. Black people are both the victims of oppression and heroes that triumph over it, and it would be absurd to ask them to relinquish either aspect. On the other hand, the Jews of the Holocaust, though there were many heroes among them and much brilliant and brave resistance by them, are hanging on to their special victimhood and not without reason. It's crucial that we not lose sight of the unique break with a certain type of functional, peaceful civilization that the rise of the Nazis became. It's like when someone goes from being a functional alcoholic to a full-on raging drunk, or some white community goes from being everyday racist to wiping out an entire black city in Oklahoma. It's an important change to recognize. No, nationalism is not okay. Walls are not necessary unless you seek to abuse people on the other side of them without the repercussions being felt within your borders. We need to learn from all oppression and all resistance to it, and we can't afford to divide our ranks when dumped aside as an emergency and we must forgo elections for now, at least until this or that issue is resolved. From the moment the founders allowed slavery to exist in the new nation, the Constitution was infected with a fatal flaw. Black people are still suffering from it. Jews, is it as important to you to hold on to the word concentration camp as it was for the colonies to hold on to slavery? Are you willing to scuttle the possible triumph over tyranny so you can continue to profit from what? What doth it profit a Jew to maintain a monopoly on concentration camps? From the moment the founders failed to guarantee the economy, economic equality to all, the Constitution was infected with a fatal flaw. The poor are still suffering from it. Is it really necessary, person of color with a place to live and a salaried profession, to tell a white working class woman that she's privileged? What doth it profit you? And while I'm at it, hey dude, is it really necessary to assert not all white people or not all men when people who are not white or men are trying to address or even just point out injustice? Just ask yourselves, all of you, is it necessary or is it petty? I know sometimes others seem petty, but just think how much less petty you are by not engaging them at that level. But if you're really just a petty person deep down, 
think of this. By keeping silent, you're actually being patronizing because you know that bringing up your petty thing will be too much for them to ignore and lead both of you into a fruitless battle of pettiness. See how superior you are? Saving them from that? It's all in how you look at it, you petty prick. We need everyone. You could get all the victims. If you could get all the victims of barely restrained capitalism to march with all the victims of white privilege and all the victims of queerphobic discrimination and violence and all the people against gender discrimination and all the men and women who would rather do something worthwhile than merely contribute to the girth of a stockholder's portfolio and all the people who oppose war, you would have a confrontation to end all confrontations. There would be no stopping us. We have to start calling out the needless use of victim identity to make useless points. Oh, sure, it's easy for me to say I'm white. Well, then I guess the conversation is over because I can't not be white, at least not till the cracker army notices I'm a Jew. We need heroism and pride. The heroism and pride inherent in the resistors of the black captivity and other ongoing systemic oppression and the stigmatizing indignation of the righteous victim of the unique historic moment to sound the alarm when the cross starts to bend its arms into a swastika. From the moment Gerald Ford pardoned Richard Nixon, our government declared it official policy that treason was permissible for those of a certain status. From the moment the Supreme Court made its decision in Bush v. Gore, we saw the last pretense fall away that the Constitution was a functioning safeguard of the people's voice in choosing who occupied the top executive office in the land. From the moment Mitch McConnell refused to even hold a hearing for a nominee for SCOTUS brought forward by the first black president of the United States, we saw the racist, the racist far right tear the dry paper mask of the rule of law from the already fleshless face of democracy. Whoever was supposed to look out that such things not happen, the Democrats, the press, or us, allowed them to happen. Now the slope is so slippery we can't get a grip. We need to salt it, carve stairs in it, or just burn it down to even get back to where we started, which isn't where we want to be anyway. So let's agree to disagree on all but this. Things have been wrong and getting more wrong, at least since the right wing assassinated the threats to their power back in the 60s. We're going to make a whole new, better, more inclusive, equal, and kind society. And we're not going to let petty differences divide us. No, not all the differences mentioned above are petty. Not all the differences mentioned above are petty, but almost any difference, no matter how serious, can be wielded in a petty way by a small-minded person. Just don't be that person. This has been the moment of truth. Good day. Oh, I wish you could be at the 46th anniversary party for Carrie's today. I, I might be at the whatever 30th of This Is How. Oh, no kidding. No kidding. I'm trying to engineer it. Awesome, man. That's going to be the, the third annual 20th anniversary party and listener appreciation party, as well as art show. Man, maybe I should get some of your art to put at the art show. How could I do that? Ooh, hey, I I'll... could probably mail it to you. Yeah. Um, hey, Charles. Yes, sir. Maybe if I could get a whole bunch of listener contributions. I actually got, I got, I just want to give a shout out to listener Tom, who sent me a zero euro bill <laughs> in appreciation for my work on the show. And if I can just, uh, mass, you know, if I could get like 10,000 of those, 
10,000 times zero is like a vast number of whatever. <laughs> uh, yeah, I'm going to try to get there. Excellent. Oh, by the way, amyl nitrate? Yeah. It's very good. But, it, yeah. It saves, it saves lives. The, yeah, what I'm sure. It I mean, lives. Yeah, it's a life-saving thing. You know, when I was in the backseat of a Trans Am, <laughs> you know, smoking a joint outside Harvey's house, and he came out with a popper, and I did it. I He basically saved me from a heart attack. I was just about to have one. Well, there you go, then. Big thumbs yeah. up for Hunter Thompson's hangover gear from Jeff yeah. Dorchin. All right, until next time, sir. Yeah, get some Swiss knowledge or something, baby. Stay oh. beautiful. Okay. Live from the good old U.S. of A., where capitalism is all our pimp, this is hell. If you want to make certain capitalism doesn't become this is hell's pimp, support this is hell at thisishell.com. There's now a couple of ways you can support this is hell. Just go to thisishell.com and click on support to find out. Thanks this week goes out to Adrian C.W., but soon we'll be thanking a lot more people as our new T-shirt will soon be available at thisishell.com when you click on support. And that should be happening sometime this week. Thanks to everyone who supported this is hell this week and in the coming days, weeks, months, and years of the Trump administration. Your support will be needed now more than ever. Okay, I just got to read two things real quick here. You can rate This Is Hell on Facebook, and so far 146 listeners have. 144 have given us the highest rating, five out of five stars. We got a four-star rating from someone who came to the conclusion that This Is Hell is not God's favorite radio show. I strongly disagree. And we got a one-star rating because we are confessed agents of Vladimir Putin. This week, we got a five-star rating from Stephen Perry. Yeah, that's Stephen Perry depending on which, you know, Stephen Perry you're talking about. Uh, because I'm thinking of the one from Winnetka, who is really into blockchain, according to his Facebook page. Stephen Perry writes, Chuck's a badass. This is how totally contributes to society. Thank you to the whole crew at This Is Hell, which sounds exactly like what a rock star would say. So thanks, Stephen Perry, for being the best member of Aerosmith and marveling at blockchain in Winnetka. Another Stephen, but not as cool as Stephen Perry, also gave us five stars and writes, interview Richard Wolf. Please, I like this uh, show because I'm a wage slave at Walmart. And I got recommendations for books that I can see if there is an audiobook option. I can't read books that don't have an audiobook, so it sucks when the guests don't have one. I really like the episode on indigenous feminism. Walmart, Wage Slave, Stephen, I hope you liked our interview earlier with Philip Matera. I like audiobooks and our interview on indigenous women too, so thanks. We also want to thank Leo for giving us five stars as well, although sadly, Leo didn't leave a comment. And you can rate This Is Hell and leave a comment about us at our Facebook page, facebook.com slash thisishellradio. Alex, who is on next week's show? Next week, Robert L. Sy and Calvin Turbeek. Turbeek will be on to talk about their Boston Review article, Trumpism Before Trump. Sweet. Which is really good. Also, Catherine Nixie will be on to talk about her book, The Darkening Age, The Christian Destruction of the Classical World. And finally, Rob Larson will be on to talk about his book, Capitalism Versus Freedom, the toll road to serfdom. I want to thank everybody who was on this. And of course, we'll have another moment of truth from Jeff Dorchin. Uh, I want to thank everybody who was on this week's show. Uh, Good Jobs First research director, Philip Matera, author, a lead author of the report, Grand Theft Paycheck, the large corporations shortchanging their workers. Uh, Thomas Frank, author of Rendezvous with Oblivion, reports from a sinking society. Assad Haider, author of Mistaken Identity, Race and Class in the Age of Trump, which very much fit in with Jeff's moment of truth this week. Also, Daniel Bessner, who wrote the 
the article, The Globalist, on George Soros, which you can find at N Plus One or David's website, davidbestner.com. And our hangover cure this week was Hunter S. Thompson's hangover cure, but you're going to have to go back and listen in the podcast to hear that because I'm not going to tell you that you should be taking amyl nitrate. Damn it, I already leaked that out. Also, thanks to Leo for joining us today as one of our new volunteers. Thanks to Alex for producing this week's show. Thanks to Ronaldo for helping us out with the moment of truth. I'm your bitter, blind, broke, gap-toothed radio show host, Chuck Mertz. There's only one way to get over all of the problems that we've introduced to you on this week's This Is Hell. That's by sitting down in the lotus position, turning your palms towards the sky, focusing on that burning white dot in the middle of your forehead, and saying these simple words, Everybody's stupid. My demon is on my butt. Oh, my butt. My demon talks to me in profanity like a sailor. And my demon tries to knock me down. And my demon tries to put me on a hell ride. Everybody's stupid except for the people that listen to WNUR 89.3 Chicago Sound Experiment. And it's now time for Classical and Beyond. We want to thank This Is Hell for another great show. And this is Eric. And it's now time for Classical and Beyond, which comes at you every...